In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O Treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O Good One. The Holy Fathers say that God created sexuality and God created the attraction of the sexes. And even though the Holy Fathers teach that, people find it very difficult to understand how that can be connected to God because... Today, most Orthodox Christians' view of sex, sexuality, marital relations, in other words, are distorted because of the negative influence of society. And sad to say that even individuals in the church have added to the confusion, whether bishops, priests, monastics, that's added to the confusion. So Christians have been bombarded from the world. So, for example, we say society. Let's, let's look at society first. We know that the medical and mental health professions in a lot of ways have mucked things up because they're telling people things forbidden from the Bible, they're saying that it's okay. We have the media, including radio, television, films, newspapers, magazines, books, internet, they've got, the, they've got pornography. And not only that, but the educational and legal systems. For example, in the schools, children have been taught things which are... Uh, anti-Christian, but also the legal system seems to allow things that before weren't allowed. What society looked at as being bad before, the legal system saying, oh, well, it's not bad. I also mentioned in the last talk that especially in the 60s with the introduction of the pill the birth control pill, and with the legalisation of abortion in the early 70s, that also has created a lot of problems. Because now, where, be, where before people were scared just in case to do things because they were scared of making someone pregnant or becoming pregnant, and abortions were more difficult and dangerous, even though in reality they still are, people were more scared. And also the church had a greater influence in people's lives. But today the church has been kicked out of most people's lives because they said that the church is repressive and that when they wanted to be free, people wanted to be free, and now that they are free, as we say in inverted commas, 
they are more slaves than ever. Addictions for everything. Now, people might say, well, why are we speaking about this? Because we're pious Christians and these things don't influence us. And if you think that, then you're deceived. The only people that may not get influenced would be those that live in the mountains, in a monastery completely cut off with no radio, no internet, and there are some monasteries like that. But as for everyone that lives in the world, everyone is influenced. Now, you might say, I don't watch television. You don't have to. There's billboards everywhere. But not only that, even at work, people will make a comment. People will make, a, will make a comment and that will influence you. To show you how obsessed and how distorted people are, there was a book that was released in 2011 called Fifty Shades of Grey, which is uh, an erotic romance novel by a British female author. I don't even want to really mention her name. It doesn't interest me. And she also actually uh, did a second and third volume called Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed. Uh, they were published in 2012. Now, The Fifty Shades of Grey, the first demonic book that she did, actually topped the bestseller lists around the world, including the United Kingdom and the United States. And the series has sold over 100 million copies worldwide and been translated into 52 languages and set the record as the fastest selling paperback of all time. And they were even going to release a film in 2015 based on her book. This book is one which is very bad. Which involves tortures and all these type of things. And people are buying them, women in particular... It's funny that women used to put men down for reading such material since men by nature are a bit more inclined towards that type of stupidity. But, and women used to put them down, but now women have become the same. And they crave and they want this filth. Now, within the church, there are also many different views now, we have all these different views in the church and many people, they tell me, are confused. I mean, even I'm confused at times because I read one thing, then later on I read another thing, and that bishop says that, and that theologian says that, that priest says that, that abbot says that, and I have to tell you the truth that um, even I, I get confused a lot of times because there are so many different views now, there are those, as we heard last talk, even priests who actually say, well, that, that married couples can do whatever they want. Even the unnatural sins are okay. As we heard from an orthodox internet site where some woman wrote to the priest there and asked questions about a certain unnatural act, and he said that that's not a sin. 
Then there are those who go to the other extreme and consider sexual relations within marriage as something that would be better to avoid. Some even say that marital relations are dirty, sinful, that God allows it for economy, that God allows it just for children. It's something which isn't good. One spiritual father in Greece said that if anyone is having sexual relations not for the purpose of children, for example, they've had some children and they don't want to have any more, or they've had some, they want to have a couple of years break, then they want to, if they are having sexual relations at the time that they don't want to have children, he said that they are sick and need to go to confession for healing. Actually, there is a move in Greece to uh, a demanding from the synod over there to do something about it because there are so many dif- there are so many differences of opinions over there and a lot of times these opinions are causing problems in marriages such that they are causing divorces And married couples already carry a heavy burden. Just living in the world today, the financial stress, keeping a job, finding a job, the upbringing of children is one of the most difficult of them all. That's why a lot of women don't want and a lot of men don't want to have children. Relationship between the husband and wife, they just don't get on. Then people have to do with the sins of the world, the influences, the temptations, the, the, the easy availability of pornography on the internet, the push for people to have an affair, to commit adultery, as being something which is good. And some eggheads even say, oh, if you, if you have an affair, it can even make your marriage better. But on top of all that, they've got to deal with then religious writings which confuse them on sexual relations and marriage. So they've got all that stress. And on top of that, then they've got to have the married couples are subjected to things which are causing problems within the marriage in, in the area of sexual relations. And, also, and there are some clergy who add to this burden either through their silence, where they don't say anything, or, as I said before, misinformation, they're out of ignorance, or their over-involvement in marital relations in the marriage, telling people they have to abstain and not really looking at each situation of the, what's happening there which can cause problems, which is contrary to the canons of the church, which we're going to do in the next talk more, but we might touch on it. So what I'm trying to say there is, yes, certain days marital relations aren't allowed, but in the canons which tell people which days they are, they also say in there that these fasts must not be the cause of a couple falling into adultery. That's the number one. 
This can be a cause of stress in a marriage. It can cause mental and physical crises, as the, all these pressures, uh, divorce and falling away from the church. Some people actually fall away from the church. Now, the church, yes, should get involved for and be specific on unnatural acts. And what I mean by unnatural acts, we say sodomy, and sodomy is not just defined as two men, but sodomy is a man with a woman, which can be oral sex, and the other one, which is called anal sex, as they call it today. The church gets involved to help people not to fall into adultery, and general guidance of what the church teaches. But it's another thing to make people guilty and thinking that married couples are going to be like monastics. And on top of that, some spiritual fathers even force people to have children. Now, whether it's a sin or not to avoid, that's another issue, which will come to that at a later date. But the issue is, if a couple doesn't want to, does the spiritual father have a right to tell them they have to, and if they don't, then something that some fire is going to come from heaven and burn them? People are calling out for help because of the confusion that exists in the church today. Now that is 100%. Often people ask questions, and you can also see from some of these... Um, blogs, which I don't read, but uh, from what I've heard, that people are always inquiring, what's this, what's that? And one person says this, one person says that. And the reason why I don't read them is because I get dizzy. So Orthodox Christians really want to know, a lot of the ones that are interested in salvation, they really want to know what is the true teaching regarding this topic there are some very good books and articles written on the topic uh, by uh, certain clergies, uh, married priests, and, and um, monastics. But there's only one problem with a lot of those books. They're written in, a, in an academic way. And to me, my opinion, the majority of Orthodox Christians can't read that type of work. It, it, I've, I've experimented on people who... You know, you've got to have basically be a person who's really well read, very, very well educated to be able to read some of this material that's come out. It's, it's put in a very theological way and people turn off. Now, there are those who believe that monastics should not be involved, as we heard in the last talk, in the married life of couples. Some go as far as to say that even married priests should not speak about such inappropriate, supposedly inappropriate matters. Now, what bothers them? What actually bothers people where they say, okay, the monastic one I can understand a little bit because they say, oh, what does a monastic know about marriage? But then that people even say, oh, but married priests shouldn't. It's, a, it's something that the church shouldn't speak about. It's embarrassing, etc. But let's see what Elder Paisios and St John Christum says about those, these type of criticisms. Now, Elder Paisios, who was a monk, wasn't a priest. He was actually just a monk. 
and something very exceptional because monks, just monks, different priests, monks, that's a bit of a difference, but monks in general didn't get involved with lay people. Now, Elder Paisios says the following. He says, forgive me for entering into unknown territory, meaning that of marital relations. For the work of the monk is to pray with his prayer rope and not these delicate matters. But so as not to distress you, I forced myself to respond to your concern by writing a few things that I understand from afar which torment our brothers and sisters in the world and give cause to the enemy. What does he mean that I understand from afar? Meaning I'm a monastic, so I'm not involved in these things. However, I have some understanding from afar, that, which I, uh, I'll explain more with some examples on that. From afar, and he says, because... Um, In the world, a lot of people are being tormented and this confusion, problems in the marriages is giving cause to the enemy to attack those couples. And and there's a little um, side note there from the book that I got it from. It says this means to give the devil the opportunity to create problems in the marriage. And I add, in other words, to cause adultery, to cause divorce, and to cause other disasters. In other words, ignorance. And when people haven't got some type of guidance, that gives the devil the opportunity to jump, to go for it. Especially in the area of marital relations. And before I go on to something else, we must understand the difference between a priest monk who has not been called to do such work and one who has. The same applies to a simple monk, even though this is less lucky. As I said, most monastics, just monastics, monks, for example, they don't get involved with married people. Now, priest monks are a little bit different. There are those who, be, who went to a monastery to become monastics. The monastery chose to make them priests for the monastery and that's how they'll stay. They will stay in their monastery, they will be priests in the monastery and they won't get involved at all with the world. However, as we see in Russia, in Greece, etc., that because there's a lack of guidance in the world some priest monks in the monasteries are forced to listen to confessions and things like that which they don't want to do but that's also been a cause of a lot of problems because a lot of times it's a bit too much for them and sometimes they even fall away now that's different to a person who wanted to do work in the world in the first place. Someone who said, I want to dedicate myself to the church. I want to serve the church. I 
don't want to get married. I want to be an, uh, like a priest monk, but I want to work in the world. And that's where we see these, these people that get positions in parishes or in the diocese, etc. So we have them as well. So to have make to make a rule that no monastic can get involved is is stupid. Because we have so many examples, as I've mentioned a lot of times. Elder Thaddeus was a monastic priest monk. Father John Christiankin, priest monk. Elder Cleopa of Romania, priest monk. Elder Philothos of Arcos, priest monk. Saint Eustine Pavlovich, priest monk. The, they say that the spiritual father of Romania was Elder Cleopa. The spiritual father of Serbia, I think they even say Saint uh, Elder Thaddeus, but also Saint Nikolai, who was obviously a priest monk first, and then he became a bishop, was called the Serbian Chrysostom. And we have so many examples of elders who were given the grace by God to deal with people in the world. The question of what do monastics know about marriage, I'm going to ask the following questions. We don't ask this question in other areas. For example, what does a male doctor know about female problems such that that male doctor has female patients? Or what does a female doctor know about male problems such that Males go to female doctors. How can psychiatrists and psychologists help people who are depressed or have bipolar or OCD or anxiety or schizophrenia if they've, if they've never had that in themselves? A lot of those people have never, never suffered from those things. How can a child psychologist help children if they've never had children? And how can a child psychologist help children... Uh, uh, sorry, how can a marriage counsellor help a married couple if the counsellor isn't even married? or perhaps hasn't, hasn't even had a long-term relationship or had any children to know how married couples do, but yet people go to them. How can a teacher of slow learners, for example, help slow learner students if the teacher has never experienced being a slow learner? How do they know what it's like? So they just read books, and from experience, obviously. So let us reject this incorrect view that all because someone had never been involved in marriage, they can't help marriages, and let's listen to the words of the monk and bishop, St John Chrysostom, who was first an ascetic. But before we do this, I want to read something from the Bible so that you know, and then we can go on to St John Chrysostom's words about this topic. And, he, and we get this from Matthew. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew chapter 19, 4 to 6. Let's read from a sermon on marriage by St. John Chrysostom. 
I'm not going to analyse every single thing of it. I just want to read it because I want to get into something else later on. But let's just have an idea, and you will be very surprised the way that St. John spoke about marriage and what detail he went into. And I'll stop a little bit here and there. And he goes on, he says, this is like a big sermon, I'll just pick some parts of it. Husband and wife come to be made into one body, as we just heard. See the mystery of love. If the two do not become one, they cannot increase. They can increase only by decreasing. Now, what he means by that is two people decrease because they're not two anymore, but they become one. And by becoming one, then they increase by having children. So the two decrease, become one body, yes. How great is the strength of unity? God's ingenuity in the beginning divided one flesh into two, meaning that God from Adam made two. He took Eve from Adam and made two. But he wanted to show that it remained one even after its division, so he made it impossible for either half to have children without the other. So he created Adam first, then from Adam he created woman, and that's two. But then he says to show that there's still one, he made, he made it in a way that either one can't have a child without the other. So you need two to have a child. Now do you see how great a mystery marriage is? From one man, Adam, he made Eve. Then he reunited these two into one so that their children would be produced from a single source. So as we say, a man and a woman, they get married, they become one flesh, becomes one source. From that one source, it produces children. Likewise, husband and wife are not two, but one. If he is the head and she is the body, how can they be considered two? She was made from his side so that they are two halves of one organism. God calls her a helper to demonstrate their unity, and he honours the unity of husband and wife above that of child and parents. So when you see a woman who says something like, oh, I love my children more than my husband, then you should cry for that person because that person is not leading a proper life. Or the same with the man. Oh, I love my children more than my wife. No greater unity is there than a husband and a wife. And that's why when a person loses a child, it's painful, but when a person loses a spouse, the pain is worse. So that's, that's my words. So um, let's go on. Back to St John Chrysostom. How do they become one flesh? As if she were gold... He calls the woman gold, receiving the purest of gold. The woman receives the man's seed with rich pleasure. And within her, it is nourished, cherished and refined. Now, some of you understood and some of you didn't. 
So, when St. John Chrysostom said this in Constantinople, when he, when he was doing this sermon, people were shocked that he spoke in that detail where he says, the woman receives man, the man's seed with rich pleasure. Obviously speaking about sexual pleasure. And within her, this seed from the man is nourished, cherished and refined. It is mingled with her own substance, that part of the man which enters the woman, is mingled with her own substance and she then returns it as a child. The child is a bridge connecting mother to father. So the three become one flesh, as when two cities divided by a river are joined by a bridge. And here that bridge is formed from the substance of each. Something from uh, the, 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 um, the seed from the man and the woman together produce a child. And this, they say, is like a bridge connecting the two. Just as the head and the rest of the body are one, since the neck connects but does not divide them, so it is with the child. This is why scripture does not say they shall, they shall be one flesh, but that they shall be joined together into one flesh, namely the child. But suppose there is no child, do they remain two and not one? So he says, well, if the man and the woman are joined together into one flesh with the child, what happens if someone doesn't have, a, if they don't have children a couple? Does that mean that they're not joined? And he says, no, their intercourse affects the joining of their bodies and they are made one just as when perfume is mixed with ointment. Now, this is very important that when a man and a woman come together uh, having sexual relations, then that makes them one. And that's important to keep that in mind because I'm going to mention something in a minute. I know that my words embarrass many of you, says St. John Chrysostom, and the reason for your shame in your own, is your own immodest sexual immorality. In other words, he's saying to them, why are you shocked? Because I'm speaking like this. He says, the reason why you're shocked is because you've got dirty minds or because you've got, you're, you're sexually immoral or you look at things in a distorted way. St. John Christopher continues and says, St. Paul establishes laws in his epistles concerning marriage without being ashamed, without being embarrassed, without blushing, and with good reason. St. Paul's master, meaning Christ, honoured a marriage, and so far from being ashamed of it, blessed the occasion with his attendance and his gift. And what was that gift? Indeed, he brought a great a wedding gift than any other, when he changed the nature of water into wine, how then could his servant, St. Paul, blush or be embarrassed to establish laws concerning marriage? Because St. Paul, as we're going to see in a minute, spoke in a lot of detail about the couple and sexual relations 
for a couple. And he actually gave a lot of detail there. So St. John Chrysostom says, so why should you be embarrassed if St. Paul wasn't embarrassed? And Christ himself wasn't embarrassed or considered something to be bad because he attended the marriage. So far, by the way, out of what I've read, have you heard anything there saying that that sexual intercourse with a couple is allowed, but it's not really good, and it's um, something that should be avoided, or something that's allowed just for children? It doesn't say anything like that in any negative way. Then he then Saint John Christum quotes Saint Paul, where Saint Paul says, "Let marriage." be held in honour by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, let the marriage bed be pure. If the sexual act, if sexual intercourse with a couple is impure, then why is St Paul saying and let the marriage bed be undefiled? I'm saying this now. Unless, St. Paul means, let the marriage bed be undefiled by couples abstaining. But that's not what he's saying. He's actually telling couples that they, to, they have, to have relationship, marital relations, and to keep the bed pure, to keep the bed undefiled, then how can that be? Why else would you be ashamed at what is honourable or blush at what is undefiled? I want to restore marriage to its due nobility and to silence those heretics who call marriage evil. Because in the time of St John Chrysostom, there were heretics who were saying that marriage is somewhat evil or evil or things like that. Now... In the last talk, I read a lot of canons from the Council of Gangra, which was in 340. Because there was a pest in those days, the Bishop Eustathios, who was an ascetic. And a lot of times these heresies do start from monastics who have a lack of discernment and are falling into deception. He was a real big ascetic. He was fasting a lot, did a lot of prostrations, of course. He kept himself pure because he was a monk, so he never had sexual relations. And then he, the, the, the madman that he was, he tried to transfer that to the Christians in the world. So he started to, him and his followers, started telling people that they shouldn't, that women shouldn't have sexual relations with their husband because they're not going to be saved that they should leave their husbands, and men shouldn't have relations, because they should, they should leave, that they can't be saved. And the canons anathematised those people. They anathematised Eustathius, the bishop, and his followers. That was in 340. But this madness even started from before 340, back in the third centuries, with these other mad people called the Manichaeans. They used to say that the spiritual world is pure, but the physical world is sinful. So sex is sinful. Augustine, 
the the Latin saint, which is which we have as well, he used to be one of them in his searchings, and then he came to the church. So he used to be one of those people. So when he came to the church, unfortunately, he brought some of that baggage with him. And that baggage was that sex is bad. And we heard last talk, he's teaching that the sexual act can only be tolerated if it's for the purpose of children. And he influenced the West. And till today, there are still people, even within the Orthodox Church, who hold similar views. They might not tell, or some, some even, they even say, better to separate. Or some say, don't separate, but avoid having sexual relations. While others can say, um, only have it just for children. There's all these different views. And St. John Chrysostom preached this around the 400s. Augustine came, I think, just after him. But they never had internet in those times. So, for example, the Council of Gangrene 340 might not even... That was a local council. The West, the Roman Church, may not even have heard anything about it. Because that was to do with them. Later on... In the fourth ecumenical council and the sixth, I think, they said that that council of Gangra that spoke against those who hated, who thought marriage was bad and dirty, that was then made ecumenical. In other words, that it was uh, to be accepted by the whole church. So there was obviously uh, a lot going on. But even St. Paul himself, in, in his... Um, Epistle, he actually, I read it to you last time, he actually said, because he foresaw that this was going to happen, he said, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Because some of you might have got offended when I said demonic about those type of teachings. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, their consciences are dead or that they're self-deceived. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4 Lines 1 to 3. And the fathers say that St. Paul foresaw that, that this was going to happen. And it hasn't stopped. This war against um, marriage. So he said, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Actually, if Stathios... He said that meat is a sin and wine's a sin. So you're not allowed to have meat, you're not allowed to have wine. Why? Because monastics, a lot of monastics, especially ascetics, they don't have meat and they don't have wine. 
and they don't have sex. So therefore, he said, well, if I'm doing it, that means everyone should do it. Where did uh, Ephstathios get this teaching from? From the demons. I'll read that again. I want to restore marriage to its due nobility and to silence those heretics who call marriage evil. God's gift is insulted. St. John Christum calls marriage a gift. And whoever goes against marriage is insulting God, he's saying. Marriage is the root of our very existence. This is what I want to wash away by my words. So listen to me a little longer. Some of you call my words immodest or indecent because I speak of the nature of marriage, meaning the, the details, the, the, the sexual aspect, which is honourable, he's saying. Not dirty, not somewhat sinful, honourable. By calling my words immodest, you condemn God, who is the author of marriage. In other words, God, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, what he's saying here is that God created, what was it, who remembers? God created, God created sexuality and the attraction of the sexes. So St. John Christum says that, that God created that. So anyone who goes against that is going against God. Shall I, shall I also tell you how marriage is a mystery of the church? The church was made from the side of Christ and he united himself to her in a spiritual intercourse. St. Paul says, I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure virgin to one husband and we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. See, the, the St. Paul used marriage as an image of describing Christ's Marriage to the church, just like a man leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife. The second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ, the Son of God, left his father to join to his bride, the church. St. John Christopher is saying, if St. Paul is using the imagery of marriage to describe the church. How would he do that if marriage was looked at as being sinful in any way or dirty or whatever? Think about all this and stop treating such a great mystery so shamefully. Marriage is an image of the presence of Christ. That is the sermon, uh, short, the part of a sermon of St. John Chrysostom on marriage. And I'm sure some of you are surprised by the detail and how much honour the saints give to marriage. Years ago, when I used to do little little talks, I was going to do a talk on something around this topic, a little bit on this topic, and I noticed that one person didn't come. That usually comes. 
And I ask that person, oh, what happened? They go, well, Father, you know, I, I just communed today and I didn't want to be present at a talk which spoke about sex. And I said to that person, well, I feel sorry for your husband. If that's your attitude, I mean, if you believe that you're going to get defiled by listening to the correct teachings on, on, on sex, sexuality, etc. in marriage, then I feel sorry for you. That you think that you're, you're going to somehow be contaminated or lose Holy Communion because of that. This is, and this person was a very, in inverted commas, spiritual person. See? And that's what happens today. And there's a lot of people who do believe that. Who believe that those, that those things are something which is not spiritual. Well, it might not be spiritual in, in one sense, but it's part of life. I should have asked that person, um, a, uh, when you're not fasting, do you eat a nice steak? They go, yes, well... Um, is eating a steak spiritual? Why do you eat it? Why don't you just eat nothing? Absorb the air. Just drink water. Now we go on to a... Um, an unfortunate person, but anyway, we have to discuss it because, as I said, I want to show to you that the Orthodox Church honours marriage... The world tries to honour marriage. Sometimes they do a little bit of a job, but they can't do it like the church can because they mix it with filth. Now, as I said at the beginning, people have been influenced and people have a lot of problems in the marriage. And unfortunately, Orthodox Christians, because they can't go to their priests a lot of times because sometimes the priest can't speak about it, they can't find someone who can talk to them about it or they think that um, they wouldn't understand. They seek help from sex therapists or internet things. Now, as I said earlier, you might say, but that Orthodox wouldn't do that. If you actually believe that Orthodox Christians wouldn't, then you're very silly. People who just read the newspaper read things. They do. They read something. They might get it. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Or oh, that's what's that's that that sounds like us. That sounds like our marriage. Oh, but I'm an Orthodox Christian. I shouldn't look at that. It's, but but the thing is that people either um, get influenced without wanting to get influenced, or they're looking for help and they read these things. Now there is an Australian sex therapist. Her name is Bettina Arndt, A-R-N-D-T. She's been around for years. Now, Bettina Arndt is an Australian sex therapist, clinical psychologist, journalist, writer of articles, editor and author of books. And in the early 80s, she also had her own radio program on 2GB 
and irregular and ra and regular radio segments in major cities all over Australia. What do you think she was doing on those radio stations? People were ringing up to talk about their problems in their of of in their marriages of their sex lives. Now it's funny that they say I don't want the church involved, but it's okay for the whole of Sydney to be involved, or the whole of Perth, whatever radio station she spoke on. Oh, I don't want to discuss that with the priest, but I do want to discuss it with the whole of Australia. And these things not just happening here, it's in America, people ringing up and talking in so much detail. It's just, uh, it, it, but some people are desperate, some people are probably just like to be, must uh, get some type of enjoyment of, of, of discussing these things on the radio or whatever. Now, Aunt or Bettina Aunt has served on a number of committees advising the Australian government on policy matters, including the Family Law Pathways Advisory Group, the National Advisory Committee on Ageing, the Assisted Reproductive Technologies Review Team, and the Child Support Review Reference Group. So she's quite an important person and recognised. In 2009, she published a book, her book called The Sex Diaries which became an international bestseller that she sold 10,000 in the first three weeks. As I said before, people are thirsty, people are hungry, people want to know. People want to save their marriages, etc. So you can't, you can't just say, all oh, those people are crazy. Some of the people don't know about the church. They don't know about the Holy Fathers. They don't know about anything. So they run to these places because they, they, they want help in their marriages. And this, this book was based on the diaries of 98 ordinary Australian couples recorded over a period of six to nine months uh, in 2007, talking about how they negotiate sex and deal with mismatched desire. Now, she talks about this mismatched desire a lot. She, follows, she followed this up with another diary project, looking at male sexuality, which led her to her latest book, What Men Want, published in 1st September 2010. Now, what I want to show you today is that these problems that people are having are explained by the church, in particular St John Chrysostom, St Paul. And as I said... The problems of the world are problems which Orthodox Christians are also having. And people mustn't be naive and think, oh, they have those problems. We don't. So, let's see what this woman, this woman, she urges women to do their, in quote, wifely duty. Number one. Number two, the right for women to say no needs to give way to saying yes more often. Number three, that men and women have biologically mismatched sexual desire. That means that you, she's trying to say that men usually are more inclined to sexual, um, um, have more sexual desire than women. And this mismatch is causing problems in marriage which is true. 
Marital disarm, disha, disharmony might be overcome if women just submit, even if they don't feel like it. Women are often to blame, number five, women are often to blame for their husbands committing adultery. And these are some of the things that she said. Now, as you would think, that, the, that um, she was viciously attacked by the feminists for her views. And these are some of the responses of her research, her book. One, one person said, Bettina aren't rape cheerleader. That means that she is a supporter of women being raped. These are the feminists now. Number two, something, 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 Bettina aren't. There's a few words there with F in it. Number three, it's men's own fault that they aren't getting enough sex because they don't do their fair of housework. And number four, an after an evening of organising kids' dinner, the shopping, washing, the homework, etc., maybe women are too tired for that. So, people are hearing this. As I said, it's on the television, it's in the newspaper, it's on the radio, and I think it needs to be addressed. Now, one thing that I want you to know, the church, from the beginning, has always got involved with whatever was influencing Christians, whether it was a heresy, whether it was some type of deception, the church has to get involved because if it's affecting Orthodox Christians, then how can, how can the church just remain silent? And that's why, to do with magic, to do with occultism, to do with the Harry Potter business, for example, to do with anything in the world, the church has to guide her children, and that's the job of the church as well. Now, there's a view which says the church should only be involved with reading the gospel, doing the liturgy, and speaking about fasting or prayer and things like that, a little bit of those things, and that's it. That's not correct. That's why Father Seraphim Rose, for example, if you read his book on orthodoxy and the religion of the future, he speaks about the charismatics, he speaks about Hinduism, he speaks about yoga, he speaks about UFOs, he speaks about everything, ecumenism, because this has got to do with the people in the world. Now, in Russia, before the revolution, in one of the seminaries there, in one of the theological schools, the dean of the school, he wanted the students who were going to become priests to be familiar with every single idea that was influencing people in Russia. So he made sure that the library was receiving periodicals of everything, demonic things, whatever. And he said to his students, as future priests, you need to know what's happening in the world and you need to um, enlighten the people. That, that's what the devil wants, for the priest to be quiet, 
for the church to be quiet and let the people be influenced and, and, and lost and, 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 um, and lose themselves. Now, this thing, these sex therapists and all these things, that's what's happening, what's one aspect of what's happening in the world. And of course I have to speak about it and people have to speak about it because it's influencing people. And it's given women ideas, it's given men ideas, and that's what's causing a lot of, today, a lot of adultery, a lot of breakup of marriages. See the stupidities that, that, that those people were saying? Anyway, what was it there that... Um, uh, it's their fault because uh, women are tired and all this type of thing that the men, of course, are not tired. But that's... Anyway, let's have a look at her response to these uh, criticisms. She says it's an old excuse. Any time men complain about something, feminists hit back with the housework myth. Interesting. The fact is, when you add up in-home and out-home duties, men work just as many hours as women, and sex has very little to do with it. Because that happens a lot. And, of course, there are some exceptions that some men are really lazy and do nothing. Uh, but, in general, things have changed now, and men are doing much more. But while men might do... But while men might not do as much vacuuming and ironing, they spend a lot of time, more time than women working outside the house in paid jobs. Generally, men do work more than women. Women do a lot of part-time now. And, of course, there are exceptions where there are women, of course, who do full-time. Men have tried to... Men have tried to up their share of housework but it doesn't seem to have made a difference to the problem of mismatched desire. So even though men are doing more work now, this problem that men are more interested than women in sexual relations is still a problem. One of aunt's diarists describes her husband as the domestic god. That, what does that mean, domestic god? In other words, he does everything. Yet, their libidos, as it's called, or sexual desire, are still worlds apart. Another diarist has put a husband on sex starvation rations. And women, and women do use that, and that's not good for a marriage. But anyway, we'll come to that when St. John, let St. John Christen explain to that, until he does more housework. But she admitted, she admitted, she said, my husband argues that even if I had an easy life with a maid and housekeeper and need not do any work, I still wouldn't be interested in sexual relations. I deny and deny and deny, but deep inside, I have to admit, there is a chance he might be right. Only 10% of her female diarists had higher sex drives than their partners, and her book is full of the anguish of other men whose wives have just lost interest. See, this is important because orthodox women might naturally 
have lost interest, but then they think it's because they're spiritual, because they're holy, and they're not interested anymore in those things. But the other women who are pagans don't have an interest as well. So are they spiritual as well? Of course, resentment is a passion killer. An unequal share of household duties has been high on women's list of resentments. Uh, that's, you know, if, women, if men don't do their um, duties or responsibilities, um, women do tend to resent them, and that's not very good for the marriage. And that, I've seen that in so many orthodox marriages. But it strikes me, she says, as being so unfair that women feel entitled to voice their complaints and demands of a relationship, yet a lot of men have at the absolute top of their wants and needs more sexual relations with their wives, and it's been totally ignored. So what she's saying is women are allowed to complain, whatever they want, but as soon as men complain about something, then they're put down. And then... Uh, she, this sex therapist woman said here, how can we justify forcing a man into a life spent begging for sex? And that happens too in orthodox marriages. The picture Bettina Arndt gets from her male sex diarist is in large part a cry for love denied they love their wives but desperately need their, the intimacy they used to have. They feel cheated. That's interesting. This is, um, they feel cheated. But I'll come, there's more about that. And another, another one says, um, a, a man writes, I'm totally at a loss as to what to do. Uh, he's 41 years old, married for six years with two children. He and his wife used to have sexual relations quite often, but now only every five or six months. I do love her and I think she loves me, but I cannot live like a monk. See, why I'm bringing a lot of this up is people that listen to this talk are not just people that have been in the church for years. It's also Orthodox Christians who don't know much about the church. And therefore, I have to cover both both groups. I have to cover those who are listening to the talk who have not much to do with the church but are involved with all these marital problems, all these type of issues, but also got to help those who have been in the church for years. But the thing here is that these problems are happening in Orthodox marriages in the name of religion a lot of times. Uh, uh, Bettina Arndt is not suggesting women have sex against their will, but, but mismatched desire need not spell the end of a couple's sex life. And that is correct. A lot of marriages today that are ending are ending because of that, to do with sexual relations. And a lot of orthodox marriages which are ending are to do with that, because that leads to adultery, and adultery leads to divorce. And even if they don't commit adultery, they divorce because of that. That is, that is true. Understanding that male and female sex drives are different was the key to harmony 
in the marriage. She said, it's all about walking in each other's shoes. Most of the women are upset, guilty, that they don't have this, uh, that, that they've got this low sex drive. It's not a deliberate thing, but we have to find a way around it if we have marriages lasting for 40 years, if you want marriages to work, she's saying. The, va the vast majority of people don't think about going outside the marriage. I like this part. Most people do not want to commit adultery. Most of them say emphatically, no, that's not what I want. I don't want to have an affair. I want this woman to want me. And that's what really comes through, particularly from men, and it's striking how most of them dismiss that possibility. They don't want to do that. But what I'm saying, she's saying, is surely in a monogamous relationship, that's like one person, that there is some obligation, and she says, to satisfy each other's sexual needs. Remember those words when we start reading St John Chrysostom soon. How can, I, how can you expect fidelity, in other words, how can you expect faithfulness in a marriage when you are rationing or refusing sex? Some men feel that they have actually been tricked and deceived into getting married in the first place by women who, when they were dating, or when they were living together, supposedly, whatever, would be very active but after a couple of years, later on, these women, the same women, have lost sexual interest in their partners. They were happy in the beginning and were very much inclined. And so she feels that she was this sexual person, the woman. Where's it gone? Why aren't I like that anymore? And he feels fooled because he thought he had the perfect woman. Poor person. And she's disappeared. They're both disappointed by how the relationship has turned out. Now, that's excellent because of the, the demonic teaching that exists today, which is that people should not get married as virgins, that people should test first their partners to see if they're compatible. And yet, that's what's happening. And that's what's happening. And yet, those marriages don't last. And she says that here. And I believe that. So they have this, all this sexual uh, uh, activity before they have children and become married or whatever. And later on, it all dies out. After two or three years, actually, St. John Chrysostom, he actually said that this attraction doesn't last for long. He actually says, how long is it going to last? Six, year, six months, one year, two years? After a while, it just dies out. And then you're left with the person. Psychologists believe that, bio that biologically what's happening in that early period is that one gets the brain chemistry with being in love. Well, that's what psychologists say. And that's probably, I think, that's true. And that's associated with all sorts of changes in the brain chemistry, which brings on sexual desire. So people are in love, they're attracted, and uh, that's why they get married. But that doesn't, that doesn't last. After a while, you're going to have to start building on love. That's what Elder Porfirio said when he said that when he was in his bed sick 
if you read in one of the one of his one of the books about him, he was lying in his bed, and then I think someone asked him about this love in the marriages, and he started moving his fingers in a way, showing that you've got to. He says it's wrong the way the world is. The world believes that you've got to be madly in love, have this perfect relationship. He says that's not how it is. He says the way it is is that you build on the relationship within the marriage to build to become more in love. That's where they got it wrong. They go, oh, I love this person. We have a great sex life, as they say it. We do this, we do that, and we're really great, we're really happy, and then they break up after a while. Some of them even break up on their honeymoon. Since the the book was published, she has been inundated with emails and messages from frustrated men. And um, the last one, but she has also touched a nerve with women. Some women actually took notice of what she said. The day after she appeared on the ABC Late Lines television program in 2009 to promote her book, a friend told her that this friend of hers works in a tuck shop at a school, and she said that every woman in her tuck shop group um, had relations with her husband, with, with, with their husbands. So they must have been scared that they might lose their husbands. And the last thing is some journalist for the Herald newspaper, a woman, she made the following comments about this book and and the findings. And straight away she begins with saying, it seems it's all a woman's fault. Typical feminist um, answer. Could there be another explanation Maybe something less practical and more superficial be at play. And now this is her conclusion. Could male attractiveness be a problem? Maybe, just maybe, some women shy away from having sexual relations with their men because they're not attractive to them anymore. This is a woman that's writing in a newspaper. You just think it's a little kid writing. But maybe it's the men who have lost their sex appeal, their ring of confidence, and the women are too nice to say it. Once they were attracted to them, now they're just not. See, the basis of feminism is hatred of men. And remember that. Let's face it, many men lose their attractiveness. Maybe that might be correct, Um, I would like to add, but maybe it's because women, um, in their photos, they touch them up with Photoshop and make them look like models, while in real life, half their face is not even theirs. It's got implants and whatever else they use there. Their eyelashes aren't real, their lips aren't the real colour, Their nails are artificial. They've had about 15, 20 operations. It's like they had a dream that they wished that they were a a piece of clay for a sculpture, for a a person who's going to make some type of human being from from, um, from marble. So they go to these doctors and the doctor gets this chisel, starts chiselling away. 
at their stomachs, at their backsides, artificial breasts. Uh, that's maybe how they do it. Let's face it, men lose their attractiveness. And then she shows her, her um, poison. She goes, cocooned in, mir in, ma in married bliss, the men now, well-fed and watered, as if they're animals, well-fed and watered, with someone else changing the sheets and washing the towels. They quickly go to seed. What such imagery? Goes to seed means like when you have some parsley in the, in the garden and then you, you, know, you leave it a bit of while and after that it goes to seed and looks really ugly looking and it just you can't eat anymore because it's gone become seedy. So that's the same as the man. After you've watered it like a horse, then, you, then it just grows into an, an ugly type of plant there. Then she goes on. Their bee bellies swell, body parts droop, and their breath goes sour, and they don't get all of us in the mood. This is in the newspaper, like a thing. How many men care about their clothes and how they look? How many take particular care with personal hygiene? Many men think three days of facial growth is sexy, far more than for whom it actually is. We are expected to keep ourselves nice. I don't know who is expecting them to be nice, but anyway, keep our weight down. No, women are telling women to keep their weight down through the magazines, through these models. But now they're waking up now. Their skirt have been sued, a lot of these new these periodicals and magazines, because a lot of people commit suicide because they can't, they're not thin. Because to become a model, you have to be a stick. So what they're doing now is they're having fat models to show that, see, we're not against fat people, even though deep down we feel that they're grotesque, but, but we'll put them in there just so that we won't get sued. We are expected to keep ourselves nice, keep our weight down, do our hair, paint our faces and dress like we're not off to the supermarket, but not men. So... Men can dress as they want, but women are expected to do that. But who expects them to do that? And yet it's our fault there's not enough sex. But we shouldn't ignore demand. If women are going to get real about our mismatched libidos, men need to get real about their sex appeal. And I don't even want to say her name. but some psychotic person who is full of hate. That was a true feminist. So some of you are going to say, oh, that's a lot of detail today, and I'm sorry, but I, I think it was good to say because, as I said, most people are influenced by this stupidity. And even though this Bettina aunt, this sex therapist, did come up with some true things, Remember, as I've said before, God can enlighten even uh, people who are not even with him, not for their sake, but for the sake of others. There are a lot of people out there who want to save their marriages. And 
he can allow people to discover some correct things. It's mixed, of course, because she says other things which are revolting. But let's just say, but can some things, and we'll be surprised that her advice is perhaps um, exactly what the saints say anyway. But we'll see. Now, Orthodox Christians should not read those that material. Look for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. These other things might have some drops of truth, as she did, but also there's a lot of revolting things in there as well, which is forbidden for Orthodox Christians. Okay, when we um, come back, we're going to now go through the writings of St John Chrysostom on this topic. Some of you may not think it's spiritual enough. I understand that you're more spiritual than St John Chrysostom and you might want to go. That's, that's, you have that right. Those who are not as spiritual can stay. But let us be careful because these problems that we think, oh, I've got nothing to do with these problems. I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not interested in those things. When you're down, when your marriage is on the rocks, as they say, then suddenly, out of desperation, you might run to the wrong doors because you haven't got the knowledge. Just like people run to magicians. That's why I did all those talks on magic. Because they don't know. Even people that have been in the church for years say, I never knew there was all these prayers for different things. No. So when, you, when, when a person's desperate and they don't know, and the devil comes along and whispers in the ears, go down to, you know, go down there and get your fortune read or do this or do that, people go. Even people that have been in the church for years can fall. Woe to the person who believes that they're not going to fall. Like St Peter, I will never deny you, but he did three times. Don't say that. Never say, I will never, 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 never uh, fall into adultery. I'll never go on the internet and look at inappropriate things. I will never have an affair with someone. I will never do this. Never say that because it's so easy today. Better to say, I'm scared I can do this. God help and protect me and pray continually that God protects all of us because the person who believes they can fall has more of a chance of not falling than a person who says, I will never fall. That person, as we say, is dead meat. They will fall. So I did that just in case some of you leave. Okay, a few minutes. I was happy to hear some good um, feedback during the break from some people. And I was asking whether they became uh, offended or anything like that. And they said that, no, actually, they said that um, they would be happy even for their children, their 
older children, like in the 20s, teenagers or older children, to listen to it because they are completely drowning in this type of uh, uh, views in, in, in the world. Now, we heard what the um, sex therapist had to say, then we heard the criticisms from the feminists. Now let's hear what St John Chrysostom has to say. Among all the authors of the Bible, none wrote on marriage as much as St Paul, as much as St Paul did. So out of all the apostles that wrote in the New Testament, only St Paul spoke in detail about marriage and especially marital relations. And among the fathers, none interpreted St. Paul as thoroughly as St. John Chrysostom or wrote as extensively on marriage as he did. So he interpreted St. Paul's epistles to do with marriage, but he also spoke a lot about marriage. The Church's tradition reveres Chrysostom as the greatest authority on the epistles of St. Paul. In other words, in explaining them, he's the greatest authority. The Church also considers his commentaries of the epistles of St. Paul as the very voice of the Apostle speaking through him by the grace of God. As you, as you notice the icon here, there is a story that St. John Chrysostom was at the patriarchal palaces we, we there, and he was waiting for some person who wanted to speak to him. And he waited quite a number of days. So he asked his cell attendant, has this man come? And he says, yes, he has come. Guess so why didn't you inform me? He says, well, every time I approached your room where you were writing, you were, you were with someone else. He goes, who? I was, and then St. John Christmas goes, oh, but I was with no one. He goes, no, you were with someone, so I didn't want to disturb you. And how did this person look? What was this person? He goes, this person was, was whispering in your ear. He was a bald man. And then he noticed an icon of St. Paul and he says, and the cell attendant said, actually, he looked like him. So from that icon that we have here of St. Paul whispering in the ear of St. John Chrysostom tells us that everything that St. John Chrysostom wrote is as if St. Paul wrote them. And everything that St. Paul wrote is straight from Christ himself. So we say, I always get this mixed up, the mouth of Christ is St. Paul and the mouth of St. Paul is St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom is one of the greatest fathers of the Orthodox Church, while the West 
generally assigns to Augustine that honour. They look at St Augustine as the authority, as a great father. And he was a great father, but he also had many errors, especially with to do with marriage. Now, I'm going to read St John Chrysostom's interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 to 11. I'm going to read it quickly, the epistle. And as you listen, you'll notice that some things you might understand and some things you won't understand. That's the whole point. The whole point is, how can we understand? Now, this is what he writes. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all of you were as I am, but each one is his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and her husband is not to divorce his wife. That's the first 11 lines of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And surprisingly, a lot of that is to do with sexual relations. So let's go on and let's see how St. John Chrysostom explains this. He starts with the first line. The first line says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, there are, I've got another two translations of the Bible. They just say it differently a little bit. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And another translation says, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to get married. That's different. some different uh, translations. Now, St. John Christum explains this as follows. He says, these are his words. The Christians living in Corinth, Greece had written to ask if it was right for a man to abstain from sexual relations with his wife. And it's, and it's um, strange that 2,000 years later, uh, people are still asking the same question. Maybe it's better and, you know, not to have relations. So that same thing it was, they were um, concerned with. And the same thing happens a lot today. St. Paul answers their questions by saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It's because they asked him. The, que the, the question that they asked him was, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And he answers, yes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, some of you might think, oh, see, negative. Must mean that sex is bad. But let's have a look. St. John Christum continues, 
It is, it is as if St. Paul was saying, if you are searching for the best and most exalted path, then do not take a woman at all. But if you want help and security in your weakness, look for a wife. So, listen to what St. John Christum's saying. It's as if St. Paul was saying, if you are searching for the best and most exalted path, then do not take a woman at all. He didn't say the marriage is bad. He says, if you want the best, then remain single or abstain. But if you want help and security in your weakness, look for a wife. Now, what does security in your weakness mean? I'm asking you. Maybe, that need, maybe it means that a man, because he's weak, needs to get married so that, a, so that, as the Herald journalist said, so that they can have someone to cook for them or wash their clothes and clean the house. Perhaps that's what St John Christopher means. If you want help and security in your weakness, look for a wife. But let's see what St Paul means. Then St. John Christum now goes to the second line, which says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Another interpretation says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, in other words, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. St. John Chrysostom explains that verse and he says, uh, by saying, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, St. Paul uses this solution to temptation to guide men to the practice of self-control. So what he's saying is that St. Paul advises men and women to get married so they can practice self-control. Now, what does he mean by self-control? Because one would think self-control means no sex at all. So he's saying get married, have sexual relations so that you can have self-control. So how does St. Paul, I'm I'm saying this, how can St. Paul speak about self-control and at the same time, tell people to get married to have sexual relations. Well, let's see what he says. St. John Christum continues, Marriage is not an evil thing. It is adultery that is evil. It is fornication that is evil. Fornication meaning when people are single and they're leading, they're not married, they fall. They can fall. That's fornication. That's evil. That's why people should get married, he's saying. Because there's sexual immorality, because people can't hold themselves, people should get married. And he says, then when you're married, you, you have to practice self-control. What does self-control mean? Control yourself that you don't go and commit adultery. So that's why he says, it's adultery that is evil, 
It's fornication that is evil. Marriage is a cure to eliminate fornication. So he calls fornication, in other words, sex outside of marriage, he calls that a sickness. He calls that a sin. And the way to cure that sin is to get married so that people then can have marital relations with their spouse. Marriage was not established for immorality or fornication, but for chastity. Stop. That's what St. John Christum says. Now, let's look at the word chastity, because people believe that chastity means purity. Chastity means a monk or a nun. Chastity means no sex at all. But that's not what chastity means. Chastity, I will, I, I will um, see, as I said before, some believe that it refers to total sexual restraint or virginity. That's what chastity means. But let's look what the definition of chastity is. And it's very interesting, the definition from the dictionary, because it, tells, it says something which is... Quite, I was surprised even when I, saw, when I saw it. It says, the definition of chastity is the state or practice of refraining from extramarital or especially from all sexual intercourse. So chastity is, yes, to restrain from all sexual. That can be one meaning. But another meaning that is used is for a person who's married to be chaste to be pure in that they do not have affairs or commit adultery. If they don't commit adultery and they only have sexual relations with their spouse, then they are chaste. Then they have the virtue of chastity. St. John Christum continues, listen to what St. Paul says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There are two purposes for which marriage was established, to make us chaste and to make us parents of these two. The reason of chastity is the most important. This is, important. This is very, very important. He says there's two purposes of, of, for, for marriage. One, as we already heard, is to prevent fornication. That's the first, pur- that's the first purpose. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. And the second purpose of marriage is to have children. Of these two, the reason of chastity is the most important. Now remember what chastity means. Does that mean you get married and then you live as brother and sister? meaning no sexual relations. Is that what chastity means? No. Chastity means that you remain faithful to your spouse and only have sexual relations with your spouse. And all adultery is, uh, is um, impure. Then St. John Christopher it continues, when sexual desire began, then marriage also began. So remember what we said last talk? There was no sexual desires, this desire in paradise. Yes, God said, be fruitful and multiply, 
but that's not how they would have. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have had children like people have children today. That came after the fall. And people say because, it's got, because it came after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell, then it must mean it's sinful. Just like uh, there was no hunger in paradise. There's hunger now. So eating, sleeping, sexual intercourse, all these things are, are as a result of the fall, but it doesn't mean that those things are sinful. In other words, if someone eats a nice roast chicken and, has, and, and enjoys it, that's not a sin. And if someone enjoys marital relations with their spouse, that's not a sin. If someone enjoys a nice rest, that's not a sin. Even though it's a result of the fall, it's still not a sin. It can become sinful, but we'll come into more detail about that later. Marriage does not always lead to childbearing, although there is the word of God which says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We have as witness all those who are married but childless. So the purpose of chastity is the most important, especially now when the whole world has been populated. So St. John Chrysostom is saying that the world's full now. And therefore, having children is not that important as much as avoiding fornication. That's more important. Some people would say that the first purpose of marriage is to have children. The only purpose of, of sex is to have children. But yet, St. John Chrysostom says, but how about those who can't have children? Does that mean what? That they're not blessed? Does that mean that there's something wrong with them? I put a whole list together, which I'll go through quickly. As I said, there is a part of the church which, which, which teaches that sexual intercourse for a married couple should only be when they are able to have children. However, there are certain periods of the month in which a woman cannot conceive. And maybe back in the old days they didn't know when those days were, but now they do. So a couple, even if they leave themselves free, let's just say they leave themselves free and they don't use any type of contraception at all, and they allow themselves free. However... There are certain times of the month when there's impossible for them to, to conceive. That means that they have knowledge that when they come together, there's no way that they can have children at that time during those days. Does that mean that they're sinning? Does that mean that they shouldn't be doing that? According to that theory that sexual relations should only be when you know you're gonna, you can have children. How about... 
Number two, during the first six months of breastfeeding, if a woman really breastfeeds, it's pretty much uh, uh, very difficult for, for a person, for a woman to get pregnant during those months. And couples know that. So after 40 days when a woman's given birth, a couple can, can resume their sexual relations. Does that mean that because they know that they're not going to have children at that time, does that mean that they're doing sins? How about menopause? When a woman has menopause and that's it, it's finished. She can't have any more children. So therefore, if they come together, they can't have children, so that means are they sinning? And number four, a woman cannot have children if, she had a, if she's had a complete hysterectomy, for example. Some women have hyster like complete hysterectomy. They cannot have children, that's it. So does that mean the couple should stop having sexual relations because it's a sin? And number five, the husband is sterile or the wife is infertile and they knew that even before they got married. So the church should forbid them because the church, the priest knows, well, if you get married, you're not going to have any children, which means that you'll be having sexual relations not for the purpose of children. That's a sin. So therefore you should. But there's no rules in the church for that. And that's why the church still marries even people who have been certified as infertile or as sterile. The St. Paul recommends marriage even to women who are virgins or widows who are past the age of conceiving. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, lines 8 to 9 and 36. He actually says, women that have passed the flower of their age, something like that. And he actually says they should, if, they are, if they've got problems and they can't hold themselves, better if they get married. But they're not going to have any children. So does that mean that they're doing a sin? But St. Paul says, you do not sin if you get married. Number seven, despite the best efforts of surgeons and radiation oncologists, Treating a man with prostate cancer when they do radiation, it's nearly impossible for him to retain his ability to father children. In the case of the removal of the prostate, a man cannot have children. So therefore, should he stop having sexual relations with his wife because it's not for the purpose of having children? Now, unfortunately, a lot of people live in a Jewish time, meaning that they have a Jewish mentality the Old Testament Jews, and we'll see why. The Jew, this, is, this is not St John Chrysostom, but he's going he's to talk about this, so I thought I'd better tell you what it's all about a little bit. The Jews of the Old Testament believed that the essential meaning and goal of marriage was procreation. So for the Jews, the aim of marriage was to have children. That was the purpose. The most obvious and necessary sign of God's blessing was seen in the continuation of the human race. In other words, they wanted to have countless descendants, their children to have their, their children have children and children, children, children down the line. This view, so clearly reflected in the Old Testament, is originally connected to the fact that early Judaism did not have a clear belief of personal survival after death. For the Jews, it was like, basically, when you're dead, you're dead. Little bit, maybe, life after, not much. Furthermore, by the ancient promise of God, 
the Israelites hoped to find among their descendants the seed of the woman promised by God the Messiah. In other words, the Jews know that God promised that from their seed, from the Jews, will come the Messiah. So they wanted to have a lot of children just in case they are the ones who give birth to the Messiah or their descendants, from their descendants will come the Messiah, meaning Christ. This is why among the Hebrews, childlessness was considered as a terrible misfortune and punishment for sins and a curse, especially for women. Couples who did not have children were regarded by the Hebrews as great sinners, as we will see in the life of Saints Joachim and Anna. So some of you are familiar with the life of Saints Joachim and Anna, and some of you are not. Remember that Saints Joachim and Anna uh, could not have children. And I'm just going to read the story quickly. Joachim and Anna lived 50 years in marriage and had no children. Joachim and Nana were sorrowful and wept long over their childlessness. Once on a great feast day, Joachim was bringing gifts to the Lord God in the temple of Jerusalem. Together with Joachim, all of the Israelites were also bringing their gifts in offering to God. The high priest at that time did not want to accept the offerings of Joachim because he was without children. In other words, the priest at the temple said, take your gifts away. We don't want them because you're sinful, because God didn't bless you with children. Your gifts, he said, must not be accepted because you do not have children and hence do not have the blessing of God. Most likely you have some secret sins. These reproaches grieved Joachim very much and he with great sorrow left the temple of God, disgraced and humiliated, and the feast they turned into grief for him while the festal joy changed into sorrow. What should have been for the feast day joy, for him it was sorrow. Deeply sorrowing, he did not return home, but departed into the desert to the shepherds, tending their flocks, and wept there over his infertility and over the abuses and reproaches made against him by the priests and other people. Anna also wept with inconsolable tears after hearing that the high priest did not want to accept their gifts because they were childless. Anna said, Now I am the most unfortunate of all, rejected by God, reviled among the people. In this way she wept bitterly all those days. Anna would call out with great sorrow while weeping, and she would say, Woe to me who am childless. It is probably because I am the most sinful among all the daughters of Israel that I am the only one among all the women to be so humbled. All of them carry the fruit of their wombs in their arms. All of them are comforted by their children. I am the only one alien to this joy. Woe is me. She actually even looked at some birds with little babies and I think she even cried over that because she goes, even the birds have children. The gifts of all are accepted in the temple of God and for their childbearing respect is shown to them. I am the only one rejected from the temple of my Lord. Woe is me. Only I, a sinner, am deprived uh, of posterity. In other words, she's deprived of having descendants because she had no children. Thou knowest the disgrace of childlessness. 
Put an end to the sorrow of my heart, she's saying to God, and open my womb and make me who am barren fruit bearing, so that we may bring the one born of me as a gift to thee. Blessing, praising, and accordance glorifying thy mercy. And as we know, even though they were old, and, the, and one would say, why even pray? They had such faith that they believed that God could still make them have a child, even though she had passed the age. And what happened was that she did give birth to a child. She gave birth to the Holy Virgin who gave birth to the Messiah. So St John Christum, now I'll explain, now I'll go through what he says now that you've got an idea of the history. At the beginning, he says, the procreation of children was desirable. So at the beginning, yes, it was important to have children so that each person might leave a memorial of his life, a remembrance of him. In other words, that for the early Jews, there was not yet any hope of resurrection, but only death. The Jews did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Christ brought that news when he came. See, Those who died thought they would perish after this life. God gave the comfort of children so as to leave living images of the departed. In other words, God promised Abraham that through childbearing life could be continued through his descendants. Some people believe that even today. Some people who don't even believe in the resurrection, which are, which are the majority of Orthodox Christians, they have this thing that they're going to leave their children behind. And if they're Greek, they might say, okay, um, my child will name a child after me. So if the, if the, um, if the son... If the son gives birth and this and the father's name is the grandfather's name is John, then the, the Greeks say that the the son will name his child John. So it'd be John. So say 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 the name is Dimitropoulos or some of that. So it'd be John Dimitropoulos. And then later on that goes down down down. So the name real big deal. That's what they think. That's that's their that's their high. That's a Jewish mentality because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. God also gave the comfort of children for the continuation of mankind. For those who were about to die and for their relatives, the greatest consolation was their descendants. That's in Jewish times and in our times too, of course, for those who don't believe. To understand that this was the chief reason for desiring children, listen to the complaint of Job's wife. She says, "'See, your memory has perished from the earth, your sons and your daughters.'" If you remember when I read it to you a few months ago, um, Job's children, the ten of them, died. And his wife said to him, see, your memory has perished because all the children were lost. She goes, your memory has perished because you won't have any children who will then give birth to other children, etc. Likewise, Saul says to David, swear to me that you will not destroy my seed and my name along with me. So Saul says to David, swear to me that you will not destroy my children and because if you destroy my children, my name along with me will be destroyed. See, that's the mentality. The Jewish mentality was that that person continues on in their children and descendants and things like that. Now, 
Another historical note, if a man died without having children, his brother was obligated to marry the widow of his dead brother, even though he was already married, but he was still, by law, he had to, he had to take his brother's wife and have children on his behalf. This would secure for the dead brother a partial survival in the children of his wife because it was so grievous that he died without leaving children. That's about it. So that's why it says he... Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. This is, as I said, the, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish mentality. Now that we've got a bit of a history there, let us now go on to what St. John Christum says. He says, but now that the resurrection is at our gates and we do not speak of death but advance towards another life better than the present, the desire for descendants is unnecessary. See, that's not important anymore. Yes, it was important in the Old Testament, but not important now because I bring you news. What's the news? That all of you will rise from the dead. You will live on. It's not important to have all these children. And that's why the monastics would be the most poor people of them all if, because they had no children, that that's it for them. But they don't care because they know that they're going to rise from the dead and they will continue on. They don't need children to continue on. We go back. If you desire children, you can get much better children now, a nobler childbirth and better help in your old age if you give birth by spiritual labour. Now, I'm not sure. I'm sorry, I couldn't understand what that meant. It, I, I think what it means is, I think it gives hope for the childless as well. He's saying you don't have to have children. He says give birth to spiritual fruit, meaning virtue, which when you, when you rise from the dead, you will live in, in, um, in eternity in heaven. Now, some people take that, and I'm gonna. This is a little note that I've got, and say, uh, in the New Testament. Firstly, a lot of theologians and fathers say in the New Testament, there's no mention that the goal of marriage is procreation. But many in the Orthodox Church say that the main purpose of marriage is to have children, and what they use is one Timothy, chapter two, line fifteen, where it says. But women will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. They use that quote and they say, see, women will be saved in childbearing. So monastic women won't be saved. It should have been written, if that's the case, um, married women will be saved in, in, in um, childbearing. But anyway, that's not what the meaning means. St. Nicodemus explains what the meaning is. St. Nicodemus explains that in childbearing is interpreted as through the upbringing of children. In other words, childbirth itself is a means of salvation only if it's accomplished in faith, love and holiness. St. John Christum stresses that, which we'll do later on when we do the talk on children. He says it's not the number of children, but it's the children that you have of how you're bringing them up. Some people have 
this thing, I'm going to have a lot of children. Rabbits have a lot of children too, but they don't bring them up spiritually. St. John Christum stressing the most important thing is when you're bringing up, when you're having children, is to bring them up in a Christian manner. That's what it means by women will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love and wholeness with self-control, meaning the upbringing of their children, not just the birth. So John Christum continues, now that we've got a little bit of a context there. So there remains only one reason for marriage, to avoid fornication, and the remedy is offered for this purpose. Marriage has the purpose of avoiding fornication. Why? Because people who fornicate, as we, as we read, St Paul says, cannot be saved. If you're going to practice fornication after marriage, you have approached marriage uselessly and in vain, or rather not merely in vain, but to your harm. If you're going to get married so that you can continue to have sex with whoever you want, then it's, that's for nothing, but not only that, it's going to harm you. It is not as serious for an unmarried man to practice fornication as do the, as do the same after marriage. So... For to have sex outside of marriage is a sin and it's serious. Yes, fornication, we call it when you're not married, but when you're married, it's called adultery. And adultery is far worse than fornication. The, the canons, the penances that the priest should assign to someone who has fornicated is of lesser years than a person who's married. I think when they're married, it used to be the age about five years, maybe or more. And the other one that was single people were maybe three years or something like that, depending on their youth. And um, Even though those canons aren't applied to the streets, but it gives you a sense of which is, which is serious. Even if this statement seems strange, it is true. I realise that many people think it is adultery only when one corrupts, corrupts a married woman. Now, this is a stupid thing that the devil teaches people, teaches couples, like a man who'll say, I'm not committing adultery if I fall with a prostitute. I'm not committing adultery if I fall with a single woman because they're not married. The woman says the same. I'm not committing adultery if I fall with a single man. I only commit adultery if I fall with a married man. And St. John Christum says, I realise that people think it's adultery only when one corrupts a married woman. But I say that if a married man treats wickedly and shamelessly an unmarried woman, even a prostitute or a servant girl, this act is adultery. The accusation of adultery is determined not only by the status of the person wronged, but also on the wrongdoer. It doesn't, you don't classify adultery because the person was single. You, you classify adultery if you're married. If you're married and you fall, even if you fall with a single person, you are committing adultery. Do not tell me about the laws of the unbelievers which drag the woman caught in adultery into court and exact the penalty, but do not demand a penalty from the married man with corrupted servant girls. It's like the Muslims. During the Roman Empire, they had the same laws. 
that a man could commit adultery with no consequences if a woman does, did it, then she was found guilty. And uh, as I said, some fanatical Muslims have the same type of law. So in, during the time of St John Chrysostom, Roman laws were still quite uh, kind of influential, even though the empire had become Christian. And he's saying those laws are wrong. If a man commits adultery, he's guilty. If a woman commits adultery, guilty. I will read to you the law of God, which is equally severe with the woman and the man and which calls the deed adultery. So even today, there are people who think that if a man commits adultery, it's not as bad, but if a woman commits it, then it's bad. And that's wrong. So let's summarise those beautiful words of St John Chrysostom at the end of this section. Marriage is not an evil thing. It is adultery that is evil. It is fornication that is evil. Marriage is a cure to eliminate fornication. Marriage was not established for immorality or fornication, but for chastity. Now he goes on to line three. Line three of 1 Corinthians 7 says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife due to her husband. Now some people will say, what is this affection? To be sensitive. A woman loves for, for a man to be affectionate with her, so that could be what it means. The husband, another translation says, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now some people might think the marital duty means to take out the garbage or that the woman must do her marital duty to wash the sheets and cook. And the, the husband should also do his marital duty, which is could be, as I said, to cut the grass, take out the garbage and things like that. Marital duty. Another interpretation says, let the husband show his wife the goodwill which is due to her and likewise also the wife show the goodwill due to her husband. What's his goodwill? So there's three ways of saying it. Well, so far, goodwill, marital duty, affection. Now let's see St John Chrysostom's Greek text of the scripture used this. This is what he said. Let the husband pay his debt of honour to his wife. That's four things so far. So if you're confused... I am confused as well. So we got the, hu the husband rendered to his wife the affection due to her or the husband should fulfil his marital duty, let the husband show his wife his, the goodwill which is due to her and, and in the Greek, let the husband pay his debt of honour to his wife. So from all those, it's hard to understand what it means. But it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what I think. If I'm giving you my idea, I'll tell you, look, I think it, like I said before, I'm not sure what it means. I think it means that. I'm not sure. You can reject that. I can't remember now. It was something that I said. I said, I don't, I don't know what it means. And I gave a little bit of an idea. Uh, and that can be rejected because that was my personal thing. But 
We're not here to listen to my personal opinion and I'm not here to listen to yours. And I think most people here would not be interested in yours and most people would not be interested in mine. What are we interested in is, what does St John Chrysostom say? So when same now this is his words, when St Paul says, let each woman have her own husband, he adds, let the husband show his wife the good will which is due to her or those other words. What does he mean when he says this? Is it to allow her to continue to have access to her money? You know, that back in those days, and the Greeks still do it, is that a woman had to have dowry. So uh, a family had to have to give some money or property or some camels or some donkeys or whatever they had, whatever they could afford, and then give that to the man and say to marry my my daughter. That's dowry. In Greek, prika, we say. I don't know. I think they still do it in Greece. But um, so a person that had a lot of daughters and didn't have much money, they would be very upset because they couldn't get their daughters married because they used to have to give these type of things. Well, in St John Christmas time, they used to use these dowries. And he says, well, what does it mean? What does he mean when he says this? Is it to allow her to have access to her money that was given by her parents? Is it to keep her dowry intact? Is it to provide her with expensive clothes or lavish extravagant table or a conspicuous display when she goes out? Is it to have her attended by many servants? What do you say, he says to the people in the, in the, in the church, what kind of goodwill do you seek? Don't all of these things show goodwill, all the things that he mentioned? I do not mean any of these. St Paul says, but chastity and holiness. So goodwill or marital duty or affection or debt of honour means chastity and holiness. So when I first read that, I'm still not sure what he means. So what happens when you don't understand something? You do your cross and you say, I don't understand, continue on and let's see, maybe the answer will come. In the next section, line four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Another interpretation says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Some of you still might not even know what that means. Others who are a bit more read, they understand what conjugal rights are. But a lot of people don't know what that even means. So let's see what St John Christopher how he explains it. And what are conjugal rights? First it means that the wife has no power over her own body, but she is her husband's slave. See Christianity? Slavery. That's what the feminists say. It teaches slavery. There it is in black and white. What further proof do we need as they tear their hair and clothes? There it is. Christianity is against women. Her body's not. Remember the what, what is the motto? What is that? What is that thing that they say continually? It's my body, and I can do what I want. So, if they, if excuse the expression, but if they shut up for a little bit, then they'll hear the next part. 
So let's read it again. First, it means that the wife has no power over her own body, but she is a husband's slave. And also, she is a husband's ruler. In other words, she also has power over his body. If you refuse to serve your husband properly, you offend God, says St. John Chrysostom. The husband's body is no longer the husband's, but belongs to the wife's. Therefore, he must keep her property intact without lessening or damaging it. We say, that servant has, a, has goodwill who takes responsibility of his master's property and does not damage any of it. So a servant or an employee takes care of someone's property. It's not, it's not their property, but they're doing the goodwill and taking care of their master's property. So he's saying, like that example, since therefore the husband's body is the wife's property, the husband must show goodwill in regard to the property entrusted to him. Does it sound a bit confusing? So, St. John means that a spouse should submit his or her body to their spouse. In other words, husbands and wives should satisfy each other's sexual needs. And even the sex therapist said the exact words. St. John Chrysostom continues, within marriage, both then and now, one of two things is likely to happen. Either the husband wants to have sexual relations with his wife, but she doesn't, or vice versa. Notice that he speaks of both situations in the same way. So don't get upset, some of you who thought, oh, look, he's gone into a lot of detail there. Before, I wouldn't have gone to the, into that detail if St. John Chrysostom and the saints didn't speak the same way. So I'll read that again. So these are exact, the exact words of St. John Chrysostom. Within marriage, both then and now, one of two things is likely to happen. Either the husband wants to have relations, meaning sexual relations, with his wife, but she does not want, or the woman wants to have sexual relations, but he does not want. Notice that he speaks of both situations in the same way. Now, I went through a list, and this is an important list, of why this happens of why this kind of mismatch thing happens and why some people don't feel like it, etc. So I've gone through 12 of them. The first reason, when people say, I don't feel like it, it just could be just plain selfishness. Just selfishness. Don't care about, are you suffering? I don't care. doesn't matter. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. Number two, tiredness is another excuse. Housework, children, work, walking, of course, that woman, that herald, that herald woman, didn't mention the other things there about childhood. Walking the dog. How about the gym? After training for one hour, I think one would be very tired. That, that is true. Number three, low libido. Now, low libido means a low sexual desire. That can happen to men as well. And I've been, long, I've been around long enough to know that sometimes it's a, it's a problem with the man and most of the time with the women, but a lot of times with the men as well. 
Now, why is that? Well, let's, let's go on. Medication, if you read the side effects, a lot of medications do cause that. Low libido, they actually say it. Certain psychiatric medication, certain contraception pills, they cause that. I didn't have time to go through all of them. People can just check the medication they take and have a look and see for themselves. This is a problem where, so, where they didn't even talk about that. I don't know, they're that dumb that they can't even think about that. It's that we have the thing about that men have bee guts and that's the reason for the problem, but not even think about this issue of medication we go to the next reason, sexual dysfunction. Now, this can be psychological, where people have some type of hang-ups. Uh, depression can cause it. And if they take medication, it can make it even worse sometimes. Or physical disease, where people are sexually dysfunctional. If that's, if that's how you say it. Number six, uh, sorry, I didn't mention, the, the psychological problems... Uh, it can be from anxiety, it can be from depression, it can be from body image, because women have been this thing about bodies and men and how men should look and how women should look, and therefore this creates a lot of stress in, 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 in the marriage. Another reason why people might have a supposed low sex drive is because they're fulfilling their desires other places in adultery, but the other partner doesn't know. Another reason for it is pornography, where people are relieving their desires in other places. Another reason is punishment and revenge, where spouses use it as a way to get back at their partners, so they punish them or take out some revenge. That's uh, not good. And when you've got hate, obviously you're not going to have any... Uh, feelings of love, are you? Number 10, repulsion or a distorted attitude. And this comes from their upbringing, how the parents looked at sex. If the parents looked at it as being dirty or problem or this, that would go and that would affect people. Sometimes it's because of early sex education, whereby children were taught things very early and it disturbed them, and that continues on in their later life when they found out of, of how things are done and that knocks them out. And I've had to deal with people like that as well where they said that they never forgot it, that they might have been in very young. So this early sex education is really bad in the schools. TV, where people have watched things on TV and also an early exposure to pornography, which are just really bad, and most people now, I think the average is now going down to 12, 11, even younger. And those people will never recover. It's very difficult for them to recover after they've been exposed to that as little children. Now, there are those who weren't exposed to pornography as little children, but they were exposed to it maybe as teenagers. They will also have distorted views. 
Um, men will look at women as sex objects. Women will look as men as something which are horrible, scary, the whole thing. is just like a lot of craziness there. Now, number 11, sexual abstinence is another reason for this, where it might be fast periods or one of the couple wants to commune. And that's a, pu- that's a big, big problem because that's causing a lot of stress in the marriage. Because people say, oh, it's the fast period. But, but we read last week that Elder Nectari from Optina said that a, a woman or a man has no right to deny their spouse, but we'll come to that as, as St. John Christen will explain it. Another reason for these low libidos and low sexual things is spiritual reading. People read a lot of, some people read a lot of monastic books. And when they read monastic books, they notice there that the monastics never had sexual relations, didn't have marriages, so they kind of go into some Lululand there where they believe that they're the same. So they have a negativity. For example, they read in the lives of saints, St. Benedict. He had a sexual desire, he wanted to fall, so he rolled around in a rose bush and cut himself so that the desire can, can, can go. So people think, oh, see, sex is bad. Or the other monk or someone who was tempted by a woman and he put his hand in the candle and burnt his fingers or something like that. And they go, oh, see, it's bad. Yeah, bad for them, not bad if you're married. But people have been influenced. Also, people read in the lives of saints that couples that lived as brother and sister, which is very exceptional. So they say, see, they live as brother and sister because, and that's how they became holy. Forgetting about all the other thousands of lives of saints where people continued to have sexual relations and had a lot of children or had children, whatever, and still were holy. Or a couple that decided, they agreed, let's leave, let's separate, let's get a divorce, which is allowed um, for that reason. You go to a men's monastery, I'll go to a women's monastery. People read that and they go, well, that, that's the ideal. So the best in marriage is to have no sexual relations at all. Now let me tell you, nowhere in the lives of the married saints does one find any negativity towards sexual relations in marriage. You will not find it anywhere. That's not orthodox. You'll never read in there of a, of a couple saying, let's not do that because it's sinful. And even when some married saints lived as brother and sister or went off to a monastery, they did this only as a means of becoming closer to God and not because they considered sexual relations as evil, dirty or a hindrance to salvation. They just wanted to uh, uh, go that one step further. But they were already leading quite a holy life. And that's, as I said, exceptional. That's some people, very exceptional. Most married couples continued to have their relations as much, whatever, whatever they felt like. So that's why people need to have a balance when they're doing spiritual reading. Not too much books on the brother and sister relationships, and meaning the husband and wife, and not too many books just on monasticism. But read books on married saints, which are for people that live in the world. That's why I'm trying to find as many married books as I can and lives of saints. And even if I have got some monastic books at the back, those sections have beautiful advice of married people going to the elders. 
And nowhere do the elders speak about such negativity. So John Christum continues. This is why when St. Paul says, let him show the good will which is due, he adds, the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. As for you, husband, if a prostitute tries to seduce you, set in traps, desiring your body, say to her, my body is not my own, it belongs to my wife. I do not dare to mistreat it nor lend it to another woman. That's what he means by the body is not, your, is not yours, it belongs to your wife and, and the opposite. And let the wife say the same to any man attempting to undermine or destroy her fidelity, her f- sexual faithfulness to her husband. My body is not my own, but my husband. He, there is complete equality. Now, this is where I wanted to read that part to show you something. It says, do you not, this is not in this section, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, chapter 6, line 15 to 16, where it says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the, uh, the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? God forbid. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, what we heard earlier on, a husband and wife, when they have sexual relations, become one. St. Paul here is saying that when someone has sexual relations with whoever, they become one. That's why he says, look at here, it says... Um, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, to a prostitute, is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Just like we use that rule for a husband and wife coming together, they become one flesh. Also, it can apply when people join in with people that they shouldn't be joining with, they become one flesh. So I thought that was good to add that after we read in the beginning of the talk what St. John Christum said about the man and woman becoming one. Remember what he said about that the man and woman become one and, they have a, and then they have a child, one flesh. But even if our husband and wife can't have children, he says the, marital, the sexual intercourse between the husband and wife still join them together. So if neither husband nor wife has power over their own bodies, they have even less control over money. Listen carefully, all you married men and women. If you cannot call your body your own, then you certainly cannot call your money your own. St. John Christum loathed the word my money. Didn't like that, to be used. My house. Now I admit, says St. John Christum, that elsewhere in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments, men are given far greater authority. In the Old Testament, it, it, it is written, uh, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In the New Testament, St. Paul gives the husband superior authority when he says, husbands love your wives and let the wife see that she respects her husband or another interpretation, fear her husband. What does that mean? will be coming in the next talks to come. The man is the head and what does it mean? And what does it mean by fear? I'm not going to explain it now. Let's just see what he says here. St. Paul also says in another part, 
Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, lines 23 to 24. The husband is the head of the wife, and the wife should submit to her husband. So St. John Christum is saying, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the man is given superior authority. Note that he didn't say that the man is superior. Men and women are equal. But man is given a superior authority. Today, in most marriages, there's two heads and no body. So it's like some type of really freaky type of birth there. So you've got these two heads that are attached at the neck, but there's no body. And can two heads really exist without a body? No. So even if a woman did give birth to, to a two-headed person with no body, they can't, they can't live. That's the same as marriages today. There's two heads, two bosses, two chiefs. But we'll come to that in the next um, talk, so that um, more detail. We're not here for that now. But what he's saying here is, yes, man is given superior authority in most cases for, for, for a lot of things, but not in the area of sexual relations. In this, he says, in this passage, however, there is no mention of greater or lesser authority. Why does St. Paul introduce so much equality? Why has he introduced an equal exchange of service and mastery? The man is in service to his wife, and she is master of him, and, and the opposite. The wife is a servant to the husband, and the husband is master of her. There, there's no superiority. Be why does he do this? St. John Chrysostom says, why does St. Paul do this? Because his subject is conjugal fidelity. In other words, sexual faithfulness. In other words, sexual loyalty. Just as the husband is master of her body, so the wife is mistress of his body. He intends for the husband to have the greater responsibility in nearly every concern, but fidelity, in other words, sexual faithfulness, is an exception. The husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Husband and wife are equally responsible for the honour of their marriage bed which they are meant to, be, to keep pure. And how do you keep your marriage bed pure? By not allowing a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and X to infinity in, in there. St. John Christum says, although in other matters there needs to be a superior authority, he, where chastity and holiness are at risk, the husband has no greater privilege than his wife. I love this one where it says, where chastity and wholeness are at a risk. When, can there be holiness where there's adultery? No. Can there be chastity where there's adultery? No. Can there be chastity if it's just husband and wife coming together in marriage relations? Yes. That's, that's still pure. That's why St. Paul says to keep the marriages honourable and to keep the bed undefiled. That means not to cease having sexual relations, but it means to keep the sexual relations only between husband and wife 
and no one else. Then the bed, it says, is pure. Uh, he is punished equally with her if he breaks the laws of marriage with good reason. Your wife did not come to you leaving her whole household so that you can dishonour her, so that you could take a cheap servant girl in her place and, and, and fall. If you disregard chastity, you will pay the penalty to God who instituted marriage and protects the wife. So if a husband disregards chastity, that means in the marriage, to be pure in the marriage, then you will pay the penalty. That person will pay the penalty because marriage was instituted by God himself. To know that this is true, hear what St. Paul says about adulterers. Quote, Therefore anyone who rejects this does not reject the human being, but God, the very God who gives his Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. Meaning that God has given his Holy Spirit to the marriage. Do you see how definitely his words prove that it is adultery to corrupt not only a married woman, but even a, a prostitute? If you're married, it's adultery. Just as we say that a married woman is made an adulteress when she sins with a servant or any other man. So we should say that a married man commits adultery if he sins with a servant girl or any loose woman. Therefore, do not neglect your own salvation. Do not offer your soul to the devil by this kind of sin. Oh, if only, I'll stop there, only if that could be preached in the churches. Where do you hear it? How many of you hear the priest to speak about adultery like that? Point of fact, do they even talk about adultery? No. Even though it's happening, the mouth is closed. Some, of course, do. Now, some of you might think, oh, you're so negative about the priests. Do you want me to lie? I can lie if you want. Everyone's calling out, everyone's warning everyone. Does it make you feel better? By such sins, many families are broken, many fights are started. What sin? Adultery. He says, because of adultery, and everyone knows cases in which people have committed adultery, by such things, many families are broken, many fights are started. Such sins empty out love and weaken goodwill. Now, the Greek, I like how the Greeks say it. They go, oh, they used to love each other. What happened? What happened? The husband and the wife, they had, or the, let's just say the husband. The husband, he really loved his wife so much, and now he doesn't come home. He doesn't care. And they say in Greek, which means sin has got in the way. What sin? Adultery. He's found someone else. Or the same with the woman. The woman used to be so caring, so loving. Something's happened. There's just She doesn't care about him anymore. A lot of times, sin's got in the way. What's that? Someone else. Just as a virtuous man can never neglect or scorn his wife, so a shameless and sexually immoral man can never love his wife. 
no matter how beautiful she is. I love that too, because it says, a man who's virtuous, he will never dishonour his wife. And uh, an immoral man can never love his wife. No matter how beautiful she is, no matter how great she is, once, that's, when the sin, once sin gets in the way, then the love stops. Virtue gives birth to love. And love brings innumerable blessings. That's why it's important in a marriage to increase in virtue, to increase in holiness. The more someone becomes holy, the more they'll have love for their husband and wife. This is ridiculous, this philosophy that exists today, is that, oh, you've got to be from the beginning madly in love. And then, uh, as you go in the marriage, then you become even madder in love, or whatever they think. But that's not correct. In the beginning, there's an attraction, obviously. The, the, the chemicals in the brain. And the person wants, that per, the person wants to marry that person. That, that's okay. But that's going to wear out after a while. And the people have to grow in spirituality. And growing in spirituality doesn't mean lessening in sexual relations, by the way. But that's another madness. Elder Favelos, as we read in the last talk, he said, a married couple came to me, Elder Favelos of Serbia. It was clear that God had endowed them with great beauty. I missed that last time. Someone brought it to my attention. They said, isn't it interesting that he, why, why he, he said that this couple that came the man was extremely handsome and the woman was beautiful. And I missed the point. And the point is, we'll see in a minute. I had never seen a more handsome couple. Then they related to me how they're having a problem with their child and they came to him for help. Now, he's, and I just left that out. Now, everything has gone wrong because of your thoughts. Until recently, you were satisfied with what you had. You did not fantasize, but now you look at other women with lust and you give your heart to these women. Your wife looks at other men and gives them her heart. Now you come together in the flesh only, but not in spirit. Your minds are wandering in different directions. And what I missed last time was the fact that even though the man was the best looking man and she was beautiful, they weren't satisfied with, with, with each other. They were looking at others. Why would you look at others for if you've got such a beautiful wife or such a handsome husband? But no, they weren't struggling spiritually. The devil comes along, teaches them, or they maybe even did it from before, look at other, other people. And uh, they began to fantasise. And then he said this thing which is important too. He says, now you come together in the flesh only. What does that mean? Saint Elder Thaddeus is saying now you have sexual relations in the flesh. In other words, just two people, but there's no love in your hearts. 
It's just the act and no love. But not in the heart. But sorry, but not in the spirit. Like two dogs. He didn't say that, I'm saying that. Did Elder Favell say there that that's sinful? No. He actually was such, such wisdom, so much enlightenment to actually say that even your sexual relations is just physical. There's no love there. Your minds are wandering in different directions. So that's what St John Christum means when he says, it doesn't matter if your husband is, is, is handsome or the wife. If the sin gets in the way, then you don't care anymore. Now St John Christum will explain the next line, which is, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. That's 1 Corinthians 7.5. Now, another way of saying it in the Greek is do not defraud one another, except it be by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting. Now, the definition of defraud is like illegally obtain money from someone by deception or rob, swindle. Example, you can say credit card fraud, identity fraud. You all know what that, what that means. So why is... St. Paul using the word defraud. Do not defraud one another, except it be by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting. So let's see how St. John Chrysostom explains that. He says, do not defraud one another except by agreement. What does St. Paul really mean? St. Paul is saying that the wife should not abstain without the husband's consent and vice versa. Why? Because great evils such as adulteries, fornications and broken homes have often resulted from this kind of abstinence. Abstinence means sexual abstinence. Make sure you hear the word vice versa, which means and the same, that um, Men should not abstain from sexual relations without the wife's permission. Why? In both cases, because great evils such as adulteries, fornications and broken homes have often resulted from this kind of abstinence. If men, says St John Christum, fornicate or commit adultery, we should say, if men commit adultery even when they have the comfort of their wives, what do you expect will happen if they are deprived of this? So St. John is saying, if men commit adultery, even when they, can, when they can go to their wives whenever they want, what would happen if they are deprived of that? No wonder St. Paul calls such a refusal an act of fraud just as he has spoken of conjugal rights as a debt to be paid in order to show the importance of joint authority within marriage. This is why he speaks of conjugal rights as a debt to show that neither husband nor wife is his or her own master, but rather are each other's servants. In other words, 
the man's body belongs to his wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband. If the man denies his body to his wife, it's like he's stealing her property. That's why it says fraud. If a woman denies her body to her husband, remembering that, the, that her body belongs to him, then it's like she's stealing something which belongs to him. Therefore, if one abstains without the other's permission, it is an act of fraud. But if permission is given, it is not an act of fraud. Theft occurs only if you take something by force without any consent. This is what many wives do when they refuse their husbands. They commit a sin which exceeds the righteousness of their abstinence. I like that part. It says that when a woman, in this case he's talking about it, or a man, but it, when a woman, say as an example, denies or refuses her husband, then that sin is so great and the supposed virtue of her abstinence or the whatever she thinks she's doing there is really a sin. Why is it a sin? Because, as he said, such abstinence causes marriage breakups and adultery. Let's go on. They are responsible for their husband's immorality and the broken home that results. Instead of behaving this way, they should value harmony above everything else. Nothing is more important than harmony in the marriage. And even that woman, the patina person, even she came to that conclusion even though I don't think she's even got anything to do with religion. I think she had a sincere type of desire mixed with madness, but still a sincere desire to help married couples. And I think that the couples going to her looking for solutions, having not known about the church, whatever, and her desire to help made her come to the conclusion exactly what St. Paul says, to submit. That's not rape. Rape is when someone does something to someone by force. That's why she says, I'm not saying women to be raped. She's saying, I'm saying for women on their own to say yes. If she says yes, that's her decision. If she didn't feel like it, but she still says yes, that's still her decision. So it's amazing that even in that madness in the world, some truths can come out. She's saying exactly what St. Paul is saying. Instead of behaving this way, they should value harmony above everything else. I've dealt with a lot of women and I've dealt with a lot of men. Women have said that they submit for the sake of harmony because the result of the house is like hell on earth. 
And she says, I value harmony much more. And that's what St. Paul is saying. Now, if you remember, last, last um, talk, I read an example from the life of Elder Nectary of Optina. Some of you weren't here. But I think it's good to read it quickly. I'll leave some parts out. And it just says here, he died in 1926. So problems even 100 years ago. And what John Christen, what he was speaking about was 1,600 years ago. So it looks like human nature is the same. Now, St. Elder Nectary wrote to a woman and says, I'm pleased to hear that you have good health and joy and you continue to live quite well with your husband. I pray the Lord strengthen you so that nothing will disturb the peaceful life between you and your husband. Again, it's that harmony. Pray for this every day. And I mentioned the last talk. That is very important. If you want success in your marriage... Each person in the marriage should be praying for God to grant them harmony, peace. Without that, the marriage is finished. And when St. Paul gives the advice of women to submit to men and men to submit to women... He's speaking there because this will create harmony. Don't worry about the feminists because they are the most unhappy of them all. So one advice I can give you from what Elder Nectary says is to say, that all married couples should pray for this harmony. Do not do anything in the marriage which causes disharmony. Fight the suspicious thoughts that you have against your husband. Such thoughts are many times baseless and all they succeed to do is to destroy the peace of soul and confuse the mind. One of the greatest ways that the devil creates strife in married couples or in monasteries is this paranoia, especially people that have got a bit of weak, a bit of a weak mind. So he comes in their mind and he starts saying that that person's got thought, your husband's got bad thoughts, your husband doesn't love you, your wife hates you, your wife doesn't care, this, that, uh, maybe they've seen someone else. All this paranoia, paranoia continually. And this, this causes a lot of problems. Fight also against all other weaknesses you mentioned in your letter. Pray, prayer has been given to us by God to help us in the struggle. And then he goes on, as I emphasised in the last talk, all problems you need to solve with prayer. And today, most people don't know how to pray. Now, people will read the prayer book. People can even read the... There's a prayer called a prayer for spouses, a prayer for unity of marriage. People will read that, but there's nothing in their heart. In one of your letters, among other things, you ask what you should do when your husband demands marital relations on days when it's not allowed. 
This demand is a transgression of the established canon of the church. What he means there is that there are days where marital relations are not allowed. We said it last time. Wednesday, Friday. And also in the canons it says Saturday and Sunday. Saturday and Sunday is because that's when the liturgies took place on Saturday and Sunday and therefore Christians would go to church every Saturday and Sunday. Now, of course, that does not apply. That's why a lot of churches just say Saturday night, which is the night before, whether you're going to commune or not. Saturday night, that's the night before Sunday. It's also on feast days, and it's also during all the Lents and things like that. These are days which are not allowed. Now, he says here... If after reminding your husband of this canon, he continues to insist in his demand for marital relations, then preferring the lesser evil, you must give in so that you avoid the greater evil. Now remember, when he says evil, he doesn't mean that the sexual intercourse is evil. He means the disobedience to the canons of having sexual relations on those days where it's not allowed. Because that's what the church has given. Why? We'll see in a minute. But he says he then preferring the lesser sin, you must give in so that you avoid the greater sin, which is for your husband to go with another woman and fall into adultery. See the sensitivity in this topic? I, what I've noticed in my research, and I, and I'm, and I tell you, I got... This was very stressful, this topic, and I think one of the most stressful topics because there was so much information out there. But what I, I noticed by reading the canons and the, the whatever I did there, I noticed one thing. The topic of sexual relations with a mar in marriage is such a sensitive topic and the fathers were not uh, favourable towards interfering except for when it's unnatural things and things like that even in times of fasting that's why Elder Nectary he says that you, you submit prefer the lesser sin than the greater sin you on your part of course must tell your spiritual father in confession about this that is that against your will it was needed to transgress feast days and other days in your marital life. I call for you the blessing of God. Didn't speak bad, didn't say you're going to lose your soul because you had to do this on a fast day or whatever day, feast day. He just said, submit. In every canon that I read with regard to which days marital couples aren't allowed to come, every single canon said the same thing. It has to be with agreement. If it's not an agreement between the couple, then the other can't force the other person, the other spouse, to abstain. It has to be with agreement. That was said in every single canon. Why? Because the fathers knew that the sexual relations in marriage is so sensitive, you interfere too much, you put too much pressure, you force people to do things, it can break the marriage. Let us examine these things more closely, says St. John Christum. Imagine a household 
in which the wife abstains from marital relations without her husband's consent. Suppose he commits adultery or, on the other hand, remains abstinent but fusses and complains, complains, loses his temper and constantly fights with his wife. This is 1,600 years ago. It sounds like most houses today. Remember, secular people, people that aren't in the church or people that are orthodox but don't live church lives, they might abstain not for reasons of the church. They might abstain from the other reasons that I said. They don't feel like it or punishment or all other things. But the point is that when that happens, he says, suppose he commits fornication or adultery. Or on the other hand, he doesn't go to someone else, but he fusses and complains, loses his temper, constantly fights with his wife. Either way, what good is all the fasting and abstinence? No good at all. It has broken love to pieces. How much abuse, trouble and fighting has resulted from this? Are you surprised that St John Chrysostom is going into so much detail? And how much concern he had in this area? Remember, he lived in Constantinople. He served the people of Constantinople. A lot of the people, the Christians there, used to be pagans. And they were fully into all these sexual things and immorality and all that. So he was trying to do two things. One, get them out of this to commit fornication as not being married. Get them married. And then the next big job was to try and keep them to be with each other only. To keep the marriages together and to be with each other only to avoid adultery. Third was about the children. Let's, the children were later on. So, fighting, trouble, grinia as we say in Greek. Remember, I've, I've been to houses back, back in the old days when I used to go, I don't go now, but I used to go to some houses where um, there were, as I said, laminate photos or picture frames in very strange places, like even on a door. So why would you put a, f a photo on a door? Let me have a look. Look behind, and there was a fist. There was a hole there. I think on that occasion, I think he was rejected. Now, women can say, oh, that's not fair, that means we're being blackmailed. I'm not really interested in the stupidities of those things. The thing is, let's look what St. Paul says. Now, St. Tikhon of Zdonsk, he says, there is a custom that some men leave their wives and some wives leave their husbands under the false claim of abstinence. But this is a very dangerous matter, for instead of exercising self-restraint, they may follow the serious sin of adultery in one or the other or in both parties. Now, he's talking about in Russia at the time, obviously uh, some people were influenced by monastic books maybe, or they just misinterpreted things and they thought that the best would be Maybe they read a life of saint where a man and woman left 
and didn't have sexual relations anymore and they lived like brother and sister. So these people said, we'll do the same. Not known, of course, that those people had progressed quite a lot. They'd already reached a very high virtue and that's a decision that they made. They don't have to. That's very exceptional. But they say, no, I want to be special. Like I was talking about last time with the school when I used to teach. So we have children that are in a lower grade and they want to do the mathematics of a higher grade. They want to do the advanced level. But I said, but how can you do the advanced level when you can barely cope with the lower level? And they say, I want to, be, I want to do the same maths as them, the same mathematics as them. Or a year seven child that wants to do the mathematics of a year 12. Is that stupid? I think so. Or a child that's in a low grade, as I said, in a general class, wants to do advanced maths. Is that stupid? Yes. Would a teacher allow that? No. It's the same in spiritual life. Some people don't even have much virtue at all. Some people have a very low spirituality and they want to go and go to the, straight away they want to go from naught to a hundred to become spiritual heroes. Look, I'm holy too, I can do that as well. But does that mean that people that indulge in sexual relations means that they're not spiritually progressed? No, they can still be spiritually progressed. But St. Paul explained the difference of those who are having sexual relations and those who don't in a minute. But let's go on here. And he says, when these people split up, what can happen is either one or the other or both can fall into adultery. When the husband leaves his wife and the wife sins with another, then the husband is responsible for this, for this sin as he gave his wife occasion for sin. Likewise, when a wife leaves her husband and the husband sins with another, then the wife is guilty of that sin for the same reason. Now, some couples may not even leave each other. Some couples might try and live uh, this brother and sister madness together in the house. Then you wonder why they look like vampires, of all this tension and stress, of frustration and madness on them. Even Elder Paisius, which we're going to read in the next talk, he talks about that, that they become like um, neurotic. It's like a monastic. So we have a, a monk lives in a monastery, in a Kinovia, as we say, and he reads in the book about ascetics that were in the desert, that lived on their own, and how they talked to the animals and how they were doing miracles, and how they reached such high levels. And then they say, I want to do that. And the fathers say, you can't do that. That's not your level. If you go and try and do that, you'll fall into deception and you can lose your soul. The same with married people. Just stick to the, stick to the level you're at. And don't try and go too high... Because at the end, you go too high, you fall. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. 1 Corinthians 7 to 5. 
Another interpretation says, do not, translation, do not refuse each other of sexual relations unless you both agree, agree to refrain for a limited time so you can devote yourselves more completely to prayer and fasting. This is, this is very important. There's a few words here. For a limited time. St. Paul says, for a certain time. Not forever. Not too long. And why do you stay separate? Why don't you have marital relations? He says, so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer and fasting. Now let's see what St. John Chrysostom how he interprets that. He says, when husband and wife are continually fighting with each other, their household is no better shape than a storm-tossed ship in which the captain and the pilot disagree. The pilot is the one who's steering the ship. So the captain is fighting with the pilot, so where's the ship going to go? All over the place. The pilot is not taking the orders from the captain. That is why Paul says, do not refuse one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to fasting and prayer. Now he's going to explain what does it mean by fasting and prayer. He's referring to unusually intense prayer. Not just ordinary prayer, but especially intense prayer. Otherwise, if St. Paul forbids those who have marital relations to pray, his words about ceaseless prayer would have no meaning because elsewhere, St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, line 17, he says, pray without ceasing. Now, some people thought, oh, that's for monastics. No, that was written to the Thessalonians, in other words, the Christians of Thessalonica, and he said to them, pray without ceasing. It is certainly possible to be married and to pray at the same time, but prayer can be intensified by abstinence. In other words, prayer can be more intense when one is abstaining from food and when one is abstaining from sexual relations. Notice that he does not merely say that you may pray. He doesn't say abstain from sexual relations so you can pray. That's not what he's saying. He said, um, but he says that you may devote yourselves to prayer so that you can dedicate yourselves to prayer. In other words, of course, Christians can have marital relations and still pray, but when they want to do a bit more intense, more, they want to devote themselves more, then they can do what's called sexual abstinence. He does not mean that sexual relations would make the prayer unclean. That's very important. See, once again, nowhere do we see in the writing of St. Paul or St. John Chrysostom this notion that sexual relations is unclean, that one cannot pray, that it, that it inhibits someone or stops someone of becoming spiritual or whatever. Nowhere. He simply means that they occupy one's attention. What occupies one's attention? He says sexual relations occupy one's attention for especially intense prayer. 
Do not refuse one another unless you both agree for a set time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer and fasting is another translation. Remember what I read to you in the um, last talk, Canon 1 of the Council of Gangra, which says, if anyone shall uh, disparage marriage, like despise it or condemn a woman who sleeps with her own husband, even though she is a believer and pious, as though she cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, let him or her be anathema. That attitude, unfortunately, more, some, some more and some less, does exist in the church today. This negativity. But we don't see that with St. Paul and we don't see that with St. John Chrysostom. Now, this thing about attention and distraction and things like that, St. Paul actually does talk about that further on in the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, line 32 to 35, he says, this is what St. Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided attention, a devotion to the Lord in other words, so that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That's the ideal. Now, St. John Christum explains and says, now the virgins should listen to what follows. Virginity does not simply mean sexual abstinence, which is what people think, oh, monastics, they're holy because they don't have sexual relations. That's one aspect. He says... Virginity does not simply mean sexual abstinence. She who is anxious about worldly affairs is not really a virgin. She is physically but not spiritually, in other words. In fact, he says that this is the main difference between a wife and a virgin. He doesn't mean marriage or abstinence, but attachment as opposed to detachment from worldly cares. What's the point in being a monastic? and being, a, a, being involved with all distractions. Like the, like the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. The five that were foolish were virgins. But the virginity didn't help them. Why? Because they were distracted. They weren't doing inner life. They weren't devoting themselves properly to God. But they just said, I'm a virgin. And they thought that because they're virgins, that they will be saved. And then we hear in the parable that they knocked and they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, I mean, I say to you, I do not know you. Yes, you're virgins, but I don't know you. you. You didn't get married. You didn't have the pleasures of a husband. But at the same time, you didn't do anything to struggle to be more devoted in your prayer and in your spiritual life, to me, meaning God. 
So, it's attachment as opposed to detachment from worldly cares. Married people tend to be more attached to worldly things. Sex is not evil, says St John Chrysostom, but it is a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all her strength to a life of prayer. Not evil. But if someone wants to devote all their strength to, to, to God, then they don't get married. But it doesn't put down those who are married. Remember the Council of Gangra, Canon 9, it says, this canon anathematizes those who remain a virgin or stay chaste because they detest marriage, because they hate it or they find it repulsive, considering it to be unclean and polluted and not for the sake of the good itself and for the sanctification resulting from virginity and chastity. The canons anathematize people who consider married life as filthy or horrible or whatever and stay virgins for that reason. That's not why a person stays. A person stays a virgin, or meaning abstinence, because a person can be have fallen, but then they remain, they're still called virgins, by the way. Um, they're not, in the full sense, virgins, but even a married person whose wife dies, say, and they go and, and, they, and goes to a, a monastery, that person, it said, they live the life of virginity, even though they're not, in the strict sense, virgins, but they're leading a virginal life, meaning they're abstaining. So you've got to be careful with that term. Anyway, he says here that if you're going to abstain, you abstain for the right reason. The right reason is so you can devote yourself more to God. St. John Chrysostom sharply condemns the attitude of those for whom virginity is merely a means of escaping marriage rather than being of use in one's sanctification, going as far as to say, in this case, listen to what he said about those who, are, who remain virgins because they find marriage revolting or whatever. He says virginity, is, is that type of virginity, is more shameful than debauchery. In other words, he's saying a person who holds themselves doesn't want to get married because marriage is dirty or because marriage is horrible and remains a virgin, that they are worse than someone who commits all types of sexual sins. Because debauchery is excessive indulgence in sex, sometimes alcohol, drugs, that uh, an immoral person, a person that's promiscuous, that type of virginity is worse than that. And that's why in the parable Christ says, Amin, I say to you, I do not know you to the five unwise virgins. Remind, St John Chrysostom says another place, remind one another that nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. In other words, doing the commandments. If, you ma if your marriage is like this, your perfection will be similar to the holiest of monks, which I mentioned last time. He's saying if someone's trying to do the commandments, then they can be on the same level as the holiest of monks. And why? I made a mistake in the last talk. 
Remember when I said there was a schema monk was buried near a lay person, and then when they um, when they um, exhumed them, when they unburied them, they found that the schema was on the lay person, and the schema monk had the lay clothes. I made a mistake. It was a novice. It was a novice. It was a monast. It was a someone who went to the monastery to become a monastic. But he, and in some monasteries, they even wear clay clothes until they're tonsured. So this person was a novice, probably in lay clothes, and the other person was a skimmer monk, and yet when they unburied them, the skimmer was on the lay person or the novice. And, and that's what happens, and that's what we're going to see in the end of time. Or because someone's got physical virginity or abstinence, or because someone's got a schema, or because someone's gone to the monastery, it doesn't mean that they're going to be greater than married people. Because if they didn't use the opportunity of monasticism to occupy their attention on God as they were given the opportunity, which a lot of married people can't do, but married people who are distracted but have a desire to be more focused on God, but they can't because they've got so many distractions, they will receive the reward according to their heart, not according to their deeds. That's why St. John Chrysostom, in his homily of Pascha, he says he receives their labours and acknowledges the purpose and he honours the deed and praises the intention. In other words, St. John Chrysostom is saying that God also looks at the intention of someone. I've met so many married people, which I look up to. People who, they're all over the place a lot of times, distractions, the children, this, that, the cooking, the shopping, the bills and this and that. But, you know, they carry with them a bit of a burden and they say, I wish that I could be, I wish I can pray more, I wish I can be more, more have my attention more on God. Then we've got a monastic in the monastery who lives a complacent life. In other words, he's self-satisfied or she, I'm a virgin, I'm, um, I'm leaving this, I'm leaving a monastic life, I go to matins, I go to vespers, I go to liturgy, I commune often. A lot of times married couples can't even commune often because there's got the marital relations gets in the way sometimes. All these problems. And yet... On the last day, we'll be surprised to see that a lot of married people will be higher and greater than monastics. So don't get things, oh, I wasn't given the opportunity. God is unfair. Why wasn't I given the opportunity to become a monk so I can have this great life or a nun? But, as I said, that's why that example was, was beautiful, the novice, which is really a lay person, and the schema monk, with a schema, great schema, and yet it was reversed. And that's telling us a lot. So I look up to a married person, for example, uh, uh, a, a man who's got a difficult wife, or a wife who's got a difficult husband, or some parents that got difficult children, or drug addict, or... And they're there, and in that struggle, they're just struggling and they're doing a few prayers from their heart, and 
communing whenever they can and having little this this um hidden faith that a lot of times you won't even find in a monastery. That's why St. John Chrysostom rightly says that as long as you fear to offend God, fear doesn't mean that you don't offend, but you may offend, but you're upset about it and you repent, then is your, if your marriage is like this, your perfection will be similar to the holiest of monks. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now we've already read the first part of that. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What does that mean? Now I'll read you another translation. Do not refuse each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain for a limited time so you can devote yourselves more completely to prayer and fasting. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now look here. Firstly, limited time. Not too long. Sometimes people can't even hold the 40 days. So you might say, oh, are you saying that we can come together? I'm saying if both don't agree, then the other person does not have a right. And the canons say that. And by the way, the canons also say that they should be penance, those who cannot keep the fast completely, lightly. And do people abstain because sex is sinful? No. So they can devote themselves more to prayer and fasting. Now, what's this come together again about Satan? When Saint, when Saint Paul says, in case Satan tempt you, he wants to show that the devil is not solely responsible for temptations to adultery. He says, in case Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What he's trying to say is, don't if someone falls into temptation of for, uh, adultery, don't blame the devil only. St. Paul is saying, that's your fault because you stayed apart too long. That's why he says, stay apart for a time as much as you both agree. If you can keep the fast, that's, that, that's the ideal. But if you can't, as long as you both must agree how long. Then he says, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because you have a lack of self-control, meaning that if people stay apart too long, they can, because of their lack of self-control, they can lose themselves and fall with someone else. And he says, that's not just the devil's fault, that's your own fault for that. It's as if he's saying, don't just blame the devil if you fall, but also blame yourself because you stayed apart too long. Yes, the canons say what they say, but if you can't do that, then the other person does not have a right to force you to keep the whole of the fast. It's still a transgression, and you can confess it, but it's not the uh, end of the world. Remember, what's the most important, as the Father say in every canon, the avoidance of adultery. That's number one priority. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that you all were as I am. Now, uh, he's saying... 
come together again, just in case Satan, he says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, means celibate. Now, some people think and say, well, St. Paul is given a concession for married couples to have sexual relations, meaning concession, meaning it's a little bit sinful, something's going on there. But that's not what it means. Now, remember, in the last talk, I read for you what one saint said, which was St. Bede, which was an English monk, obviously influenced from St. Augustine, now, his interpretation of this concession that St. Paul's saying, I give it to you as a concession, not as a commandment, he says that it means that this concession makes sexual relations lawful, yet not good. So when he spoke, when St. Paul spoke of permission or concession, he indicated that it was not blameless. That's the same type of thing in, with which a lot of people have today in the church. The concession means that married couples, yes, they can have sexual relations, but it's sinful. Now, this is a wrong interpretation. Now, even though he's a saint... It doesn't mean he's an ecumenical council. We go with what the councils say and what St John Chrysostom says, whose writings are recognised by the whole church. Some saints did say those things. Some spiritual fathers say those things today. Some monastics say those things. Some married priests say those things. It doesn't mean that they're correct. Remember what St. Augustine said, he said that it's permitted, it's not good, but it's permitted for children only, and that way at least you get forgiven because you have children. Now, I'm going to read something which I read in the last talk quickly. The Holy Fathers praise virginity by stating that it's the highest form of Christian life without ignoring wholeness of marriage. The Holy Fathers do not elevate married state to the same level as virginity. That is, they considered marriage as second place. This is not to say that marriage is somehow evil, dirty or wrong. To quote St John Damascus, we are not saying all this to belittle marriage, God forbid. We do, however, know that virginity is better than good. Virginity is as much more honourable than marriage as the angel is superior to man. Christ himself is the glory of virginity. Christ, of course, remained as a man a virgin. Or, as St Jerome says, the difference between marriage and virginity, proper virginity, by the way, not like the virginity where people aren't struggling, is like the difference between doing what is good and doing what is still better. St John Christum says it even the best. He says, marriage is a good thing, but virginity is even better if practised correctly. I'm putting that in. Meaning, undistracted. And we know as well that why St Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, is because Christ himself said that virginity is better. So how can he go against Christ? So he's saying, yes, you can have sexual relations in marriage, but I'm telling you that the best would be not to, not because it's evil, but if you want to go higher to use the opportunity of being in the monastic state or it's celibate. So remember what Christ said here, he says, his disciples said to him, 
If such is the case of the, of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. He who is able to accept it, let it accept it. And St. Theophilact here says that Christ says that there are few who can achieve virginity, for Christ neither demands virginity nor dissolves marriage, but he does put virginity first. So that's why St. Paul says, I say this as a concession, meaning I would prefer you to be like me, celibate. That's the ideal. But if you want to get married, to have sexual relations, it's blessed, it's good, it's nothing wrong, but the other life is higher, if done properly. Of course, again, as we said earlier, that each married person will be judged on their heart how much they want to be better as well. I'm going to give a couple of examples of when something is truly a concession, meaning a concession of sin. What I mean by that is Elder Paisios advised people to at least keep Wednesday and Friday fasts. This is not the same thing because it's a sin not to keep the other fasts. So he didn't say to people, I want you to keep all the Lent's. I want you to keep this, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. He said, at least keep the Wednesday and Friday. He's making a concession. In other words, he knows that them not keeping all the fast is, is a sin, but he's making a concession. That's different to marriage. Marriage is not a concession in the same way. Marriage is not sinful, but God permits it. In this case, St. Paisius is using his discernment and saying, okay, at least keep Wednesdays and Fridays. Then, he, at another time, he says he'd advise people today to say at least do five to ten minutes prayer a day. But that's not even correct because Christians are required to go to compline and matins and midnight services. That's what the ancient Christians used to do, and therefore he's saying this as again as a concession and saying, "Well, do that. At least do that, even though." You are missing out on all the other services, which is wrong, but do that. That's a concession. Another one, to a man whose child, and another, I think there was two examples. One had a sick child, another person had a sick wife, I think. And Elder Paisius asked him whether he can pray or fast, and he said no. So what did he say? Did he say to him, you're sinful, you should be doing prayers, you should be doing fasts, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. He didn't say that. He just says, well... Do you smoke? He goes, yes. He goes, well, then give up, at least give up cigarettes. What? What's that? He's saying, just give up cigarettes. But shouldn't he tell him to do the fast night? Yes, he should. But he's using an economy and a concession and saying, well, it's wrong that you're not doing it, but at least do that. Not the case of marriage. Nowhere does the church say it's wrong to have sexual relations, but the church has a concession. Another example was the one that we just read about Elder Nectary when he said to the married woman, um, submit. Again, concession. That's a concession. It's a still a sin, but it's better to do that than to cause problems in the marriage. And also in talks 56 and 57, 
where I did those things about second and third marriages. In this case, again, this is truly a concession. Why? Because the church applied penances to those who had a second marriage and a third marriage. A man who's been married twice cannot become a priest because the second marriage was looked at as being not as pure as being just married once. If a, man, if a priest's wife died, he, the priest cannot be married again. If he wants to get married again, he has to give up his priesthood. Why? Because the second marriage was considered a little impure. And that's why St. Nicodemus says the first marriage is the law, the second is done out of forgiveness, the third is a transgression, even though the church allows it with a lot of, um, oh, with a lot of difficulty. And as the saying goes, another way of saying it is the Orthodox Church blesses the first marriage, performs the second one, tolerates the third, and forbids the fourth. The ideal is one marriage. In the marriage service, it does not mention anywhere that those who get married have, and have sexual relations are guilty in any way and need of repentance. For all the rest, yes. Yes, the church says you can get married a second time. But the service is done with all prayers of forgiveness. And, but the marriage service, there's not one reference to forgiveness because they're going to have marital relations, nothing at all. Let's, let's listen to some of the things that the priest says during the, the uh, marriage service. He says that he will bless this marriage as he blessed the marriage in Cana of Galilee. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy, that the Lord our God will grant them an honourable marriage and a bed undefiled, pure in other words. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy, that he will grant to them chastity, and the fruit of the womb, as is beneficial for them, let us pray to the Lord, let us have mercy. See how this makes sense? How can, they be, how can they be chaste? How can they have the virtue of chastity if they're going to have marital relations? He says, grant them chastity and the fruit of the womb by having children. So in other words, the church is saying, yes, you can have sexual relations, and yes, you still will be chaste. Pure that he will grant to them enjoyment of the blessing of children and a blameless life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. No mention of blame, like St. Bede said and what St. Augustine says and what other spiritual fathers today say. That he will bless them with a blameless life. Let us pray to the Lord. That he will send them, that he will send down upon them Perfect and peaceful love and help. Let us pray to the Lord, that he, Lord of mercy, that he will preserve them in oneness of mind and in steadfast faith. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord of mercy. Then there's a little prayer. Let us pray to the Lord of mercy. O Lord our God, who in your saving providence granted by your presence in Can of Galilee to declare marriage honourable, now also, as the same Lord, maintaining peace and oneness of mind your servants man and woman, whatever the names are, whom it, has, whom it has pleased you to join together, cause their marriage to be honourable, keep their bed undefiled, mercifully grant that they may live together in purity and enable them to reach ripe old age, keeping your commandments with a pure heart. 
For you are our God, the God of mercy and salvation, and unto thee do we send up glory to the Father and to the Son and the Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Where's the mention of there about that it's something bad? See, have children, keep your, je- your bed pure, meaning no third person, fourth and fifth, etc. And keep your and your marriage is honourable. No mention at all of any repentance that an, a, a man and woman should offer because they're getting married, as they would for a second marriage and a third marriage and many other things that the church tolerates or permits or gives concession. But that's not what St. Paul meant when he said concession. And just Ephesians chapter 5, line 31 to 32, uh, St. Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What I said before, that St. Paul uses the image of the man and woman coming together in describing Christ and the church. And he calls it a great mystery. And lines 7 to 9, But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, St. Paul is showing that. It's better to remain single so you can devote all your life to God. But if you can't do that because you don't have self-control, if you're burning with sexual passion, then get married. There's nothing wrong with that. It says here where it says, but each one has his own gift, one in this manner and another in that. What's this and that? What does that mean? What it means is, I read it to you in a different way. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, brackets marriage, and another in that, celibacy. So what's he saying? What's St. Paul saying? He's saying that either marriage or celibacy meaning to stay a virgin or sexually abstinent, each one is a gift. Whether marriage or celibacy saves and sanctifies. I think that's really it. But I think the message was quite clear today and, uh, and very valuable. And yes, the church did speak about those things in detail. And St. Paul and St. John Chrysostom spoke in a lot of detail. And whether there's mismatched libido or whatever they say, all these people, and that um, sexual desires are not equal and men more, women more or less, it doesn't matter at the end of the day if we stick to what St. Paul says and what St. John Chrysostom explained to us and confirmed, then the marriage will endure. If people don't do that, then it will be a cause of misery and breakup, adultery, etc. And as I said, today 
even those couples who are even trying to submit to each other, they are a thread away, a lot of people are falling away with someone else. But let's not add the pressure with the abstaining without permission. So each couple, as the canons say, these are the exact words, should have the enjoyment of each other. That's what they use, the canons, in the rudder. And that they have to understand it's given by God. And don't abstain without permission of the other or too long because it can lead to sins. The marriage is the most important thing. Once you've worked that out with your spouse, then you can start working on the other one, which is not to fall in any way with someone into adultery. But if you've got the added pressure of this abstaining and fights and problems and friction, if you eliminate that pressure in the marriage, then the temptation for adultery will be incredibly less. Stand up. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord have mercy and save us. Amen.